At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher Mookie Harrington, joined by my North by Northeast by Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you today? I'm great, Mookie. How are you? I'm doing okay. Tonight's my... uh. My last show at the uh, the place that's kicking us out. Oh, and uh, uh, we 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 heard last week from the owner. He uh, stopped by and he's like, "This isn't my idea. It's my son's idea." I mean, I'm, they want to throw you out. So uh, it's a little little family drama going on in a uh, old Mexican restaurant. Yeah, but uh, life goes on. It's uh, August fifth, twenty seventeen. Uh, this is a a abnormal recording time for us because, of course, uh, we're normally biweekly, and this week. We are one week away from when we last recorded. So we will be PayPaling everyone who's listening to this show with it with a, an invoice, and you can pay us back uh, at your leisure, I guess. Something like that. You know, uh, we talked all last week all about WWE Q2 results. Obviously, there's no new results that have come out since then, but uh, I know you've done one or two other appearances. You're on the Place to Be Nation uh, main event show recently talking about results. How did that go? And, and what, what are the sort of things that you think people focused on since they saw those WWE results? I don't know. I, I think most quarterly calls, let's be honest, are just sort of dense, and it's, it's really hard to, to grasp what they're talking about unless you you know immerse yourself in this stuff like we try to do. I, I, I think, um, like you said, I was, with, I was on the Place to Be Nation's main event podcast. Uh, uh, Nate and Scott were very uh, kind to have me on, uh, and we discussed, I don't know, things like the WrestleMania attendance, because I think that's the most 
accessible thing for most people. That's the thing that people are most familiar with anyway. Everybody's familiar with all the arguments that go on year after year about what the WrestleMania 3 and WrestleMania 32 attendances were. So there's that. And uh, that's what's I always find it. Yeah, I just always find it so humorous that it's like, A, the investors don't care about the fake numbers. Right. B, the wrestling fans are obsessed with the fake numbers. And C, neither of them seem to ever be focusing on the most crucial portions of the business. Like each one of them interprets it through their own lens that is sometimes so skewed. So you had those NPR reports going out about Jinder Mahal this week. And it was kind of this other take on, you know, what does it mean to have an Indian champion in the WWE and so forth? And it's like, it's funny to me how many different viewpoints there are and how almost nobody seems to have a good way to put their finger on what is the pulse of this company and what is going to be the heart that drives it forward in terms of anything beyond just the financial metrics that, you know, that sometimes are honest and sometimes are as, as variable as us deciding we're not going to include these film impairment charges. We're not going to include these legal costs and so forth. So what do you think are the most crucial uh, parts of their business? What should we be paying attention to? Well, I think if we're talking about what drives the business forward, obviously there's no doubt that it's TV rights in the sense that that is what's paying the bills and that's what has such a high margin business for them. And I think that's the thing that's lost most between the revenue streams is people thinking that a dollar is a dollar. And when you have one that's operating at a 50% margin and one that's operating at a 20% margin, yeah. there's a big difference between producing a dollar in each of those segments. So I think that's one part of it. Obviously, the um, negotiations they have with other businesses in terms of either licensing is huge in terms of maintaining the, the kind of top shelf partnerships that they have. So, you know, the Mattels of the world, um, bringing on those kind of people, that's important. And then, of course, the negotiations they're having with TV networks and, and any other players for the content is enormous. And we know the least about that, obviously, because they're, they're so close uh, lipped on those kind of negotiations, both because of the securities lawsuits in the past, but also because uh, they're just naturally are so many years away that they don't want to play their hand at all. And, uh, and lastly is, is just kind of that question of which markets are you investing in? Which markets are you worth investing in? And what are you doing that is propelling you in those directions? So uh, why India and China rather than Latin America and Europe? Why not Asia, you know, like there's those questions that I think are out there and, and that those are the ones that to me mean a lot. And then, of course, the core metrics. I think attendance matters and I think some form of ratings matter, you know, whether you want to turn ratings into a, a mega combination metric, which is a combination of social media ratings, delayed viewing, viewership of people under a certain age, viewership of people that make a certain amount of money, et cetera, then do it. But, you know, I think it's it's those things that are really mattering in terms of their financial guidance and their financial stewardship. I don't know. Sometimes, you know, I think this is a company that perpetually has spent more money on their dividend than they're bringing in and free cash all the time. So that's always a really curious thing. And the fact that they took out a huge $200 million loan, you know, probably the first time in, in 20 years that they took out a big loan like that, it's unusual to me. And I still feel like I don't ever have the answers of what it is they're doing with that money and why they got it. But no one else seems concerned. So maybe it's my WWE Studios rant all over again <laughs> where I'm just – I'm in the minority of someone, you know, throwing pebbles at a building saying this thing's about to fall over. So who knows? As far as the dividend, though, I, we're, we're, we're not even talking about anything we plan to talk about yet. But like the, I was just thinking, you know, they, they pay this dividend. Um, quarterly, I think it's twelve cents per quarter per share that you own. 
not every publicly traded company provides a dividend, but WWE does, and then some other companies do, like Apple. Um, so why? And and I think they've been pro- providing a dividend throughout their history as a publicly traded company. Is that right? Since nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, I can't think of a time that they never had a dividend. They did cut it at one time. Um, I think it was even higher for a while back in the mid-2000s, and I think they've cut it down since then. Um, obviously, the biggest reason they pay the dividend is because a huge amount of that cash goes to the McMahon family. Oh, and, you know, it's essentially a way of saying, well, Vince McMahon will forego his $1 million uh, talent compensation, but he'll still take his $10 million or whatever it is in dividends. Because Vince so, owns something like 46% of the company. So he, he, exactly. he owns an enormous number of shares. I think it's in the millions. And the number of sh- well, It must be because there's, what, 77, about 77 million shares in WWE and he owns 46% of them. So, you know, imagine the amount of money he's making off dividends. And not only that, the fact that, of course, then he has preferential share voting too because they, right. they get 10 times the rights on those Class B shares. And, um, you know, what I thought was really interesting this week was um, this news about Discovery and Scripps coming together. Um, that Scripps family uh, owned the, the Scripps channels and the thing about those uh, uh, channels were that they had a preferential share treatment. And so only if the Scripps family wanted to sell, could they be sold. And so um, just to give some ideas of the, the, the brands they own, they own Food Network, DIY, Cooking Channel, Travel Channel, um, things like that. So uh, they're coming together now and kind of making a new mega channel between Discovery and them. And so that will be interesting from both a content production side also from a lifestyle side, because, you know, that's that's a good example of a company that in no way seems to fit well with wrestling. But yet we have seen reality programming showing up on the TLCs and the, the history channels and and, you know, all this other kind of bizarre. I don't think people would have guessed A&E would be such a big channel, you know, before the Breaking Bad saga uh, in terms of where it went. So it, it's interesting to see where these kind of new controlling ones go. But for they they've been courting each other for like more than 15 years because the front the um, kind of the heads of the two companies were, were friends. And they could never get the deal done because the Scripps family didn't want to share, sell. And finally, they did sell. And so I always thought, oh, this is interesting because it's it's another company that kind of reminded me a little bit of WWE where you had a, a family-owned ownership structure that prevented kind of a big transaction from happening for a very long time. Will, will they be making a play for Raw and SmackDown in 2019? WWE would love to make you think they did, will. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I don't think so. But, you know, um, I, I do remember their name being one of the – the big ones back in the 2014 negotiations um, that was out there as a possibility of, of kind of this discovery was one of the few other mega media conglomerates that could make a big play because it was always a thing about WWE wanted to have kind of a cross channel appeal. And so they wanted to have, you know, a channel that maybe focused on more than one thing. So if you remember when they went to Viacom, of course, a little bit of it was on MTV. Some, most of it was on TNN, but you know, you had that cross channel thing going on and now of course between e with total divas in the old days with sci-fi now just on all in usa that was kind of the appeal that they were working on is the idea that they could structure different shows on different places to reach different audiences at different times well is, so, is, is destination america included in this mm, i don't know who owns destination america it's discovery channel isn't it um yeah it is owned by discovery communication so i do think that would be part of that so yeah, yeah i guess i guess that's a good example of a a wrestling programming that has been on one of their channels or mo- more than one of their more than one program on their channels yeah. in the past ring so, of honor and tna in yeah, so, 2015 yeah 
and swamp people somewhere, right? <laughs> Wasn't there like a swamp That's wrestling right. show? That's... Yeah. So just that that idea that um you know, I wish I had that magic formula, obviously. And so maybe that's why everyone kind of gravitates to different things. But it is funny. I think whatever you knew going into your interest in WWE, that's what you gravitate to. So for Dave Meltzer, it's right. attendance. For you, it's social media. For me, it's uh, television rights. You know, it's whatever you knew. That's what you gravitate hey, I'm, I'm towards. I'm things beyond social media. Let's be fair here. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that I think you always enter with that. I always give the example. Yeah. There used to be a guy obsessed with DVD sales. I recall. And it's yeah. like. You know, that was not obviously the uh, engine of growth for WWE. But social media will be the future, maybe. Well, you know, one one thing that a lot of people were talking about on social media this week was whether or not getting Cena and Nakamura on SmackDown, having a main event with them, and the winner facing Jinder Mahal, is this quote-unquote fair? Is this right? Is this the... um, uh, appropriate way to structure your your uh, pyramid of television and television rights uh, by putting Cena and Nakamura on quote unquote free TV. It's not free by any means, so um, pay TV really, but in that part of the ecosystem. Yeah. What were your thoughts? So, so I guess I don't know if you just set it up, but I, I guess the, the the question is: so here's a big match, and, and certainly in in previous eras, this would have been a match that you would put on pay per view. Um, not that they didn't put big matches on on television at times, especially like during the the Attitude Era. I think you know, like one of the biggest Raw ratings is is a is an Austin versus Undertaker match, isn't it? Uh, from the, the late '90s or so. Yeah, but, it was uh, in uh, late July, and uh, I actually wrote an article in FSM one time about it, uh, about how we were at the 20 year anniversary of of like the highest rated segment ever on Raw, and it was yes, you said a Austin versus Undertaker match. Right, even even more than that, um, Rock and and Foley. This is your life segment, right? Like that that match is it was a higher rating than this is your life, right? There was more viewers watching for sure, yeah. But yeah, I, I think it it does I think the media landscape since then has changed and and you think about well, wow, T V rights are so big now, they're a third of our revenue stream and we've really gotta you know I guess maybe their thought was, you know, that the T V rights contract is gonna be coming up and we're gonna have to renegotiate it probably starting next year if not, if they aren't already. So we've got to uh, do something to improve these ratings. So let's let's throw SmackDown a bone here, and maybe this will help the rating. Um, it didn't really that that strongly. I think the rating was up about two percent from from the previous week. So it wasn't like the rating exploded because of this match. Um, I don't. That's it, because John Cena fans are always at the gym, and the gyms are not being rated included in that rating. That's true. No, <laughs> but uh, no, it is it is a little bit of a surprise it didn't go up, especially when we saw that John Cena was able to kind of uh, buoy the SmackDown ratings on July 4th, uh, clearly from his return. So you would think that then a big match, John with with uh, Shinsuke Nakamura would be a big, big deal. And did they not promote it enough? Did they, you know, bring it to television too quickly? Was it um, just because we only really get the SmackDown numbers for the whole show rather than for quarter hours? I mean, we don't even get SmackDown broken up into two separate hours like we do get Raw broken up into three separate hours for whatever reason. They, uh, I think we discussed this before. For whatever reason, Raw is reported as three separate hours, but SmackDown is, is reported as, as one entire segment, at least uh, when we look at Showbiz Daily. Ever since they moved away from uh, UPN, uh, it's possible on UPN you were getting uh, individual hour ratings um, because at that time it was a network program. And so I think it was being included in all the network stuff. But once it moved to cable, I think it got treated like a single show. 
But yeah, I, I mean, I would look at if it were up to me, I guess I would look at John Cena and Shinsuke Nakamura as okay. Here's here are two guys who are probably the most charismatic guys we've had, or, or we do have and, and have had for many many years. And I would have built this up if not a WrestleMania main event. It certainly is a, as a big pay per view main event. But I'm sure they have some idea in their head that it's it's for the greater good, and we're going to move Cena. Maybe they're going to move Cena over to Raw. Uh, some things that are being advertised as far as uh, future events suggest that, that he's going to be going over to Raw. So I'm sure they have some grand scheme in their head that's going to, you know, it's 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 for the greater good, and so we might as well, since Cena's moving to Raw, we might as well get this Nakamura and Cena match out there. And we've got no pay-per-view to put it on because there's no pay-per-view happening between now and SummerSlam, so we might as well might as well do it. They, they probably look at it as they've got nothing to lose, so we might as well put it on SmackDown and try to drive a big rating and try to make it a big deal. Um and I think there's other pieces to it as well. Uh, for one thing, more people are going to see this on SmackDown than would have seen it on the WWE Network. Because between Hulu, actual viewing, you know, worldwide viewership, everything, I'm positive there's more people that are seeing this match by, by airing it on SmackDown than putting it on the, the network. For two, you as you say here, they seem to be rushing a lot with Cena this year. I mean, think about all the AJ Styles programs that we've seen with Cena already. Um, it, it, it seems like they're pushing it quick because he's not a commodity that seems to be steadily available throughout the year. And so because he's not uniformly distributed across the year, they seem to kind of smack dab things really quickly. And as you noted, they are going to bring him to Raw. That's why he's the whole mysterious free agent thing that they, they just kind of threw out there randomly and making a big deal about, you know, I think it's a good thing if you are going to do that, then, yeah, you should probably give the rub to another guy before you move out and kind of start a different program in a different direction. So, uh, better or worse, uh, I, I, more, more eyes on the product. Good for the, the ratings you'd hope good for the rub possibility that Nakamura is not as big of a television star as he is of a network star. You know, I think, I think it's been well proven that he is very charismatic. And he's very great when he's on the network and people enjoy that. But on television, on SmackDown, it's been a so, so, um, exhibition in my book and so i think you know kind of elevating him on television is gonna a little bit like the opposite of what american alpha had which is you know someone who also looked really good on the network and then came to television and kind of looked crappy um i think sometimes you do have to rehab a guy a little bit on television to make them seem important and this is a great way to rehab it and you know it got me watching got me excited got me invoked and ready to watch some SummerSlam. And I think the Nakamura versus Jinder dynamic is interesting. So uh, I'm I'm for it. I agree. It could have probably been built up more. Uh, you know, you could even see building up over several weeks and, you know, a tournament or something where you get back to this finale with these two. But it is what it is. And, and it, it was interesting to me. And I, I am definitely not upset that we didn't get on pay-per-view. One thing I noticed was, you know, your average Cena singles match on Raw SmackDown. I did the calculations since 2014 and it's about 12 minutes. And on pay-per-view, it's closer to a 22-minute match. And, you know, how long was this match? I think it was like 12.30 or something. So there's something about pay-per-view that just he, uh, he, he prepares more for, for pay-per-view and he really gets his endurance up, it must be. <laughs> well, it was interesting. So, you know, I looked at what was your average singles match in general on Raw for the last four-ish years, three and a half years. And it was seven minutes on SmackDown with six and a half but on a, a non-WrestleMania pay-per-view, your average singles match is almost 13.20, and uh, WrestleMania is over 16 minutes, um, versus like an average network show, which like would be 205 Live or Superstars or Main oh. Event, is only about seven minutes. 
So it's funny that like the network shows like that are programmed just like Ron SmackDown, where on pay-per-view, if you get a singles match, you know, it is a 13 minute match. And um, so I do think there is a difference in terms of what the stories that they're trying to tell. And so then I even went as far as to look at, you know, um, kind of a made up ELO type ratings on guys. So ELOs is a way of basically saying how what's the guy's ranking or power. And, you know, if you have a high ELO, that would imply that you're a really important, strong player. So, you know, like the chess metric. Yeah. Yeah. So like imagine everyone's playing chess and we're going to use this ELO rating to figure out which chess player is going to beat which chess players. Right. Yeah, and in my wrestling analogy, what I do with it is I, I basically say every time you win, that's a 1. Every time you lose, that's a 0. Every time you get a draw, it's a 0.5. And then I take your two ELOs, and I basically come up with a percentage that says this is the likelihood of you winning versus this person. So if two people that are rated the exact same wrestle each other, the likelihood one wins is 50%, right? Because they have the same kind of weighted uh, chance of winning. And so when one of them wins, they're going to get the difference between 0.5 and one times whatever the K value is. K value is just how important was that match. So um, maybe I'll say raw is more important than main event, but it's less important than pay-per-view, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you, you add up these points and then one person's score was goes, goes from 1600 to say 1604 and the other person would drop to 1596. And then you do that iteratively all through these years, year over year over year. And you can basically what's interesting is you start to see, wow, the guys that are winning a lot. And it's just, especially when you're only looking at television matches, it kind of washes out the whole house show faces winning aspect of it. Um, you, you can kind of see when there's there's inflection points in terms of where guys are being booked. And so like gender is a really interesting example because you see this downward trend, downward, downward, downward. And then there's like this really clear now it's going upward. And what's fun about it is you can then take guys that have um, their ELOs and then you could even map out what is the average length of a guy with a different ELO section. And what I found, which was kind of interesting, is that like when you get guys that are over in the in the study I was doing, it was 1700. But again, it's going to always depend on what you start with, what your K values are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that those guys got matches that were like almost twice as long as everyone else. But then otherwise people are really clustered in this kind of six to eight minute mark. So it was really interesting where you would say like guys are usually six to eight minutes on Raw or SmackDown unless you're one of the important guys. If you're an important guy who's, you know, like a 1700, 1800 ELO, then you get to have the 12 and the 14 and the 15 minute matches. And I know this is not a, a – um, a surprise for anyone when I reveal this kind of data, but it's interesting when you can kind of plot it out and sort of say, Oh, if you handed me the roster today, I could hypothetically with never watching a match of this, say, this is how long each one of these guys should be wrestling for. And it's, it's also funny to see, you know, who falls to the bottom, who falls to the top. And then how often do you actually have matches between two guys that have say 1700 plus ELOs and, you know, Nakamura versus Cena was one of those few examples I could find. Uh, in this recent kind of television landscape, a little bit more on Raw because Reigns is really high and things like that versus a guy like Curtis Axel, who's been on such a terrible losing streak. He had something like a 200 ELO, which I just couldn't believe I had gotten somebody to uh, with my my silly math. So it was just kind of fun. The Ascension must be pretty low, too. I think they never they they were also very low, but they were surprisingly not as low as I thought, because if you go over the, the 2014 to 2017 data, 
they had a period of time there where they were big in NXT, and that's yeah. part of my data set. Oh, okay. So they don't they don't stink as much as you'd expect them to. Versus Curtis Ax- Curtis Axel really has not had a real push since I think it was 2013 when maybe he was doing that program with Triple H. Right. Um. So I, I was surprised that some guys that I thought would be at the very 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 bottom weren't and then i was surprised that some guys that i thought might have rehabbed themselves more hadn't yet so like gender was coming back up but i still think gender was only at like you know 1550 or something after dropping down to like 1200 because he has he still is not you know been for that long a champion beating big guys so it, it's a flawed metric of course because you get into a lot of arguments about what happens with you know dqs how long should you time out guys between when they leave a fed and they come back to a fed so someone like jinder when he left for a year or or ever however long does he come back and is he at a higher le- higher place or a lower place than he started or people just pick up where you, they remember you or what do you do with a guy like roddy piper or something or steamboat who maybe you know took a decade off between times that they might have shown up in the ring so sure uh you know, there's there's a lot of arguments to be made about how to do that correctly, and that's really not relevant to our Nakamura Cena argument. But uh, it was it was kind of fun for me to to try to like, I'm always fascinated with the idea of saying, can I figure out a way to quantify why certain people should be getting more time or are getting more time or who is secretly getting a push that you might not really notice. You know, I remember I did this last year and I found Baron Corbin was getting a big push and I couldn't believe it. And in this last year here, it's really panned out in my opinion. But at the time, I really didn't believe that Baron Corbin was getting that big of a push. So it, it's sometimes nice. To, you can actually start to see the seeds of booking well, longer than people tall, so. Yeah. Well, he's got some tattoos too. Um, anything else you wanted to say about, about Cena and Nakamura? Yeah, so I, I think I think Nakamura is compared to you know previous decades in wrestling history, we're trying to assess like, well, how big of a star, how valuable a star is is such and such wrestler, and how should we use them? I think the situation of having Shinsuke Nakamura in WWE in 2017 is is quite a bit different than any situation with a a star uh, or somebody we want to push than than there's been in. in in, you know, in previous history, I think Nakamura has got a different value probably than somebody else, uh, than, than just about anybody else that's come along before in that. It's sort of like, as you were mentioning, well, the, the TV viewership didn't go up that much. And maybe the, the, the issue is, you know, the TV audience is, is more of a casual audience. You've got, you know, maybe a lot of kids watching or, or people who aren't super diehard fans probably aren't a lot of people who knew who Shinsuke Nakamura was before he came to WWE. So he's not seen just yet as a, as a big star. Maybe never will. Who knows? But he's not seen as a big star uh, yet to those people. He's a, he's a guy. He's one of the guys. Uh, he's one of the top stars on SmackDown. Maybe we'll, we don't see him as like the way that I see him or maybe the way that a lot of people who, uh, you know, who interact with me on Twitter see him as, you know, this is a guy who's one of the most charismatic stars to come along in a long time. And my God, he's custom made for WWE and he could be a, a real big star for them. So the point is, I feel like was – is is his value optimized best in this situation on TV or is it optimized best on, on the network? And I, I, I feel like it's, it's the network because you want to, you want to, you know, give value to the network. You want to give value to, to the thing that you're marketing towards your hardest of the hardcore fans, right? Which is the network, not so much TV, even though, yeah, TV's got it, it, you know a lot of priority because TV is where a ton of our money comes from and, and less so in the case of the network. And then I, and then I think back to the, uh, I think the, uh, there was some sort of paper that came out from Needham, right? That that you shared with 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 everything, everybody on Twitter, and I saw it, where they uh, they try to estimate, you know, what, what's the the revenue, what's what are the dollars per 
per viewing per viewing hour for those three pillars that they always talk about, which are the network, pay TV, and YouTube. And uh, and what what Needham estimated was it's about sixty seven cents per viewing hour for the network. It's about twelve cents for all their global linear TV deals, and it's about six cents for YouTube. So I feel like when, you, when you're looking at the difference between sixty-seven cents per hour and twelve cents per hour, that's a pretty big difference. And I think that even better supports the case that this match should have happened on the W network. And again, I know that they've got the uh, there's some greater good that they've got in mind, but I think this would have had some value to put it on the network. Well, but I would challenge you with okay, let's actually put the margin numbers against that. So your margin number on the network is about twenty percent. So your sixty-seven suddenly is down to twelve. Your margin number oh. on TV is maybe fifty percent. So your your twelve is now down to six, and your margin number on YouTube, I'm going to say, is a quarter. Uh, I would have to look it up, but you know, maybe it's two cents. So now I'm arguing between twelve cents. Six cents and two cents. And so I would agree, maybe you would go to that and still say, I'd rather take this margin on the network. However, I think it's it's not true. It's a six to one comparison. I think at best it's a two to one comparison. Okay. So that would be my my counter to that. Well, even if you're looking at 12 to six, that's you still still have double the value. Yeah. Yeah. So that's part one. Point two is I don't think Nakamura is a limited, uh, uh, resource right so the fact that we put him on television in a big match doesn't mean we can't put him on the network in a big match too sure i don't know they're not going to do cena versus nakamura now now that they've done not now not now and so what i like is you know i think from a storyline standpoint all you have to do is say okay the first time we met you beat me now i'm more serious about it i'm bigger you know let's make this a bigger thing i'm coming back this is huge to me let's let's fight it out and you know maybe have a title at stake maybe do something else and so yeah it's the same argument you know there's a lot of great matches we never got because um the the timing never worked out and the booking never worked out so we never got to see you know the eddie guerrero versus Shawn michaels or something like that and I'm not saying that that you know Cena or Nakamura is going to be gone in a year, but at, at times I would always rather review the the matches I got rather than uh, pine for the matches I wish I got. Um, so that, that's just where like, I, and this is open, this is opening another can of worms, but it's almost like you know look look back, we never got a, a pay per view at least in WF. There was never a pay per view match between Flair and Hogan. There was never a pay per view match between Flair and Bret Hart. Yeah. Exactly. Or Hogan and Bret Hart, really. Um, right, right. Ever. Anyway. Having a real program. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember they almost gave it away on a Nitro I was at, actually. That was the gimmick. And then it was like a double turn at the end. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, they're going to do this. Like, this, is, this match has been building for so many years. And now they're just giving it away on a Nitro. And I was like, oh. I and and I guess. Shows. Yeah, yeah. There, there have been like tag matches. I think they were against each other. But, mm. you know, it, it, it's that weird element where you you have to argue about what's the difference between how people book today and how they book in a long-term thinking and setting and so i think they're just kind of consuming it as they come along and for them this nakamura gender thing is where they want to be and if they really were interested in catering to their hardcore fans i still don't think they would be going this direction with gender mahal right now and so i think it's more than that i think it's more that they're interested in telling the stories that they want to tell and so this is the story that they're interested in telling, and the, and the marketing people are supporting them. Yeah, and I think I think they're going with Jinder Mahal because they're perpetually interested in in, in getting in India. I, I don't think that by any means WWE has decided, oh, we're just going to forget everything else. We're just going to be satisfied with the, with the hardcore fans and just try to drive as much money as we can out of them. 
I think they're especially interested in, in breaking into new international markets, and, to, and at least to some extent, they're still interested in, in creating new fans and, and whatnot. Speaking of people with a lot of fans, Mr. Brock Lesnar is uh been making you know waves again, talking about whether he was going to go fight John Jones, whether he was going to leave WWE. Uh, there was, I think, a tweet from was it WWE Creative, which I don't remember exactly who runs it. One of the former writers, maybe Kevin Ack, maybe someone else. And uh, the joke was was like eat, sleep, pretend to leave for UFC to hold up WWE for more money before WrestleMania repeat something like that and then randy orton even retweeted it said that's pretty good yeah he enjoyed that tweet so uh it's it's interesting there kind of that idea about you know what is what is the value of brock right now and um, one question that came up through the seeking alpha article that uh someone posted uh let me see if i have his name here um uh jeremy mckinsey uh and he, he talked a little bit about you know the wwe network would suffer without brock in terms of buys. And so I put a little poll up. I got a, a astounding 76 uh, <laughs> votes. So not, not really a huge sample size here, but 72% said, no, Brock is not key. 18% said, yes, Brock does equal network subs and 10 chose my, uh, I abstain good, sir. Um, so if you were to even take out those abstainers, uh, from my group here, you know, that 72 would become well over 80, uh, so just kind of that question. And of, these are seventy six people who follow you on Twitter. So I would think these are these are these have got to be people who are pretty smart. You know, these got to be people who are pretty serious wrestlematricians here if they're following you on Twitter. So I, and I think that's reflected in the the ten percent I, abst- I abstain, good sir, because they were just so judicious and so considered in their response here. That's possible. That's possible. <laughs> you know, uh, but I, I think it's that weird thing where I do feel like, and I've I've long supported the idea that Brock meant a lot to pay-per-view. And I think UFC has proven that Brock means a lot to pay-per-view. Yeah. And, and eyeballs have proven that Brock means a lot to even television ratings. But I would agree there is an element where Brock might not mean that much to network subs anymore because we have moved into such a hardcore fan base that doesn't seem to be triggered as much by um, specific matchups. And in addition, Brock has been given, in my opinion, some pretty crappy matchups year over year here where, yes, he does occasionally have a a fun feud with The Undertaker or even with Roman Reigns, but then he has a lousy feud with Dean Ambrose or Bray Wyatt. And so it's like, um, I I shouldn't say Bray Wyatt. I'm thinking of The Undertaker's terrible feud with Bray Wyatt. But, um, you know, there's been some lousy uses of him as well. So uh, I think the Goldberg stuff was really good. But, uh, you know, maybe he has run his course. Maybe he's not going to really generate that much value on network subs going forward here beyond anyone else in the programming does. Yeah, I, I, I just think that's a phenomenon of, of modern WWE is that not a lot of people really matter. And, and uh, at least not a lot of people, if they go away, are going to kill the business. And I think that's that's the way this modern corporate WWE wants it. And I, a couple of calls ago, we heard Vince McMahon say it's a big wheel that keeps on turning and, and there's no one star who really perpetuates our business. And that's true. And even when it comes to the biggest stars, like if you took Brock away, I think network subscriptions would be all right. It's not going to help, certainly, but it's not going to be, I don't think it's going to be like a, a measurable difference. Um, and I, I do think sometimes we oversimplify Brock as just being a television commodity. And so we talk about, you know, this is how much they're paying for him. And is he repaying for himself? And we leave out the fact that he does make a lot of money on merchandise. And he has been shown to make a difference at house shows when he shows up. Mm-hmm. So there is that element where he does help goose the business in little other ways. 
that sometimes we underestimate. But uh, I think the WWE model for years here has been um, select stars make the biggest impact by leaving for a while and then coming back. And so, you know, yeah. we saw that with Sting. We saw that with Goldberg. We saw that with Brock, uh, even to Cena to a less degree, you know, coming back and, and leaving and type things. Um, so so there's that element, too, which is, you know, you uh, think distance they would, makes they the hardest that and and I would think that would be the impetus to, like, restructure what, what they do as far as putting people on TV where I think they should put people on TV for a certain amount of time. Maybe I, I mean, I, I think of the big show is like the, the perfect example for this big show being on TV. I know he's not on TV every week. Not now, but I think like he's somebody who shouldn't be on TV 52 weeks a year. Like and, and, and other people fit this bill as well. I feel like people should be cycled out you know, in and out. And then when they come back, it'll be a big deal and, and so on. Because especially when they've got the style of TV that they do. Have you heard of the Sam Punk? He was a, a pretty yeah. popular little scrapper yeah, he, they he used would, to have. He would probably get a pop if he came back. <laughs> he still gets chance at the arena. Yeah. And people are always like, Dave and Brian didn't talk about the chance. What, what are they going to talk about? What are they going to say? People chanted his name. He was not there. Like, what else yeah. is there to say? Well, I you know, like, The Rock. <laughs> I, I feel like, just if you want to talk about the CM Punk chants, I feel like the CM Punk chants are about, I know everybody has a conversation on, on, on various podcasts after they happen. Like, CM Punk's never coming back. Stop stop chanting for CM Punk. But I, I think that the chants are about... He is coming back. I'm winning that $100 bet with Brian Alvarez. Well, yeah, that too. Uh, but, but I think it's about it's not so much that oh we we want this guy back I think they do I think that's part of it but I feel especially the reason why it's 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 CM Punk and not somebody else who's not around anymore is because CM Punk his his character and and the aura that he had was he was kind of a, a voice for a lot of for a certain section of frustrated fans who feel like you know I love wrestling and then to an extent I love what WWE does but I also hate what WWE does and that they they make me frustrated often they insult my intelligence a lot they ignore histories and so on and so on and now that guy's gone and now that that guy's not going to be the one who's going to come out and, and have a promo with triple h or vince mcmahon and say you know semi shoot things that are that you know cut close to the bone that guy's and, not around anymore so we're going to chant his name because you know we, we we need somebody to to carry that mantle and there's so many elements to why he's not around and what he's doing. Obviously, he still has a UFC contract as far as we know. They they have not cut him yet because they don't want him to go to Bellator. He is embroiled in a lawsuit with Christopher Amon, who is the doctor the WWE uses backstage yeah. for everything, um, whose brother may or may not be a legal guy like Scott Amon. Uh, I'm, I'm never clear about this, but there's another Amon that signs a lot of papers in WWE that I see in the legal filings all the time. And I'm always like, I wonder if you guys are brothers, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. And then, of course, there's the fact that um, Punk feels that the lawsuit against him from Christopher Amon is actually the WWE funding it yeah. and backing it and has made claims to that effect. And WWE internally has more or less referred to the lawsuit as if it is them suing Punk, even though uh, in in from a, a slander, you know, defamation standpoint, it is between Punk, Colt Cabana, and uh, uh, Chris Roman. So it, it's interesting. There's that element of it. There's the element of um, I, I, I do think there's something to the fact that Punk came onto the indie scene in the time of the dying days of three companies. And you hear someone like like Paul Heyman say, "I wanted to rebuild. You know, I would have brought in a guy like a a." punk into an ecw back yeah. in the day if it had lit you know if it had lived and it didn't and so i i kind of reenacted some of that when i was doing the wwe ecw but you know i think there's something to be said about sometimes guys mature in a certain age 
And because they don't kind of break into the scene at that exact moment, they have this interesting aura about them where, you know, there was guys that were in the the Japanese garbage scene in the 90s that, you know, were really interesting at that time because of that legacy, that Mr. Pogo type. Um, but as time went on, you know, the, the, the world changed and, you know, that allure of that person in their background kind of fades. And so I think part of it now is that we're so far away from, you know, that era of guys that would have come about in 97, 98, 99. And we're now into a whole new generation of people. It's almost like now I wonder what is that missed opportunity that people are, are longing after. So no longer is it I wish CM Punk was in ECW because what he did in ROH, that was the, you know, natural predecessor, natural successor. Um, you know, is it that I wish Kenny Omega was in WWE? Is it, you know, is it is it almost like New Japan fantasy booking or something now? Yeah. Because we're even seeing that the, the European stars popping into WWE in a way that, again, that's almost like a fantasy booking that you you kind of would never have guessed, right? That you'd be seeing some of these guys somehow associate with WWE. And it's it's such a shame right now that they haven't found a way to actually integrate them rather than just kind of feature them. Yeah. Well, they want to have their hands in, in whatever pots they can reach that somebody else is trying to reach into. So I think that's partly what it's about. But to, to go back to talk, talking about Brock Lesnar as... Is Brock Lesnar a pay-per-view draw? And if if UFC gets him and gets to uh, do John Jones versus Brock Lesnar, that could be a big deal on pay-per-view. And I think I feel like this is what Dana White would say as far as well. It, you know, just considering if uh, if Brock Lesnar is a big deal to, to the W Network or not, in which we kind of agree he's not. And I feel like the difference is is because it's a it's an MMA fight versus a pro wrestling match. I feel like if if Dana White you know were here, he would say that you know. Well, fake fighting just doesn't have as big of a value on something like pay-per-view or maybe even the network as it does when when you're in real fights. Well, I would think that Connor versus uh, 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 Mayweather would say a lot about the value of "quote unquote" fake fighting on a uh, well, it's, pay-per-view it's not basis. Be a work. It's not going to be a work. It's going to be a shoot fight. I think it it is a uh, legitimate sporting competition. Between two people be that spectacle. are being portrayed as and maybe an as athletic equals. commission shouldn't, shouldn't have uh, authorized it, but uh, an O and O fighter, yeah, I would say that's a possibility there. Uh, speaking of UFC and Brock, uh, I want to kind of branch to something else that was brought up, which was this Rich Brennan uh, discussion. Uh, the guy used to be a commentator occasionally on SmackDown, right? He's definitely um, on NXT. Was he on SmackDown? He might have been a stand-up guy. Yeah, I thought he I thought he made it in there a little bit, but um, but Rich uh, was talking about you know the more I am looking at big picture, is is there beginning of a major play for WME IMG uh, regarding p- purchasing WWE? It's been talked about you know in the past they made overtures towards buying WWE before. At least it's been talked about. I wonder if this is the beginning of that. We've heard a lot of possibility that Vince wants to divest. This has been talked about. It makes me think. You know, podcasts sound so stupid when you write down what the people actually say during them. I feel bad. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, it, it was an interesting question, and and uh, you you posed it to me, and I thought a lot about it. About would a company like a WME IM, IMG that owns essentially Zufa, owns UFC, would they ever want to go and purchase another sports entertainment? powerhouse like wwe would that be in their best interest what would be the value to them what's the feasibility of it uh so you can give some of your thoughts and then i'll give you some of mine well i i would admit it i i know very little about w wme img other than it's a 
a company that just paid you know billions of dollars to buy UFC. And isn't uh, isn't WMEIMG the the agent of or of some sort for for Vince McMahon? Yeah, it was it was the um, so William Morris agency okay. uh, that WM and there was like combined with another like mega talent agency to create this kind of merger of two things. And we should also be clear, WME is not the only owner of this because they took on a heck of a lot of debt to buy this. And uh, I believe they ended up getting some other investors that were also, you know, contributing money to this entire big cause. Uh, so it wasn't just them. So, but, uh, so I'm yeah. just trying to imagine, like, if like a, like a talent agent? Like, what, is, what does Vince need a talent agent for? I'm not, not questioning it, but I'm trying to imagine, like, what... Like Vince doesn't take bookings, doesn't like take interview bookings or anything outside of his company. Like, what are they doing for him? Uh, I imagine that it might have to do more with the um, uh, licensing business that they do, where uh, it it might also help them if, you know, someone wants to do a cookbook or a biography or something that involves him. I don't know. You know, they talked all about those film rights that were, you know, bouncing around uh, Hollywood about the McMahon story that would have been related okay. to his film agency. So, okay. you know, any, any kind of other developmental plans that they had, especially if it did or did not involve their likeness, you know, I would just say, put it that way. If his likeness is on something, then probably his agent was part of it of negotiating what would be the fair part of that deal. So, so sex lies and headlocks, the, the cover of that book where he's uh, superimposed on this, uh, roided bo- wrestler body. Maybe that. probably not, but probably all those muscle and <laughs> probably all those muscle and fitness oh, covers. There you go. And yeah. you know, interviews he does, and yeah. uh, goes on to, you know, when he goes on to to Bob Costas and smacks the papers out of his hand right. or Ar- Armin Um But anyway, I I think th- this is an interesting thought in in the case of maybe you know, most companies out there that maybe this would be something that could happen. But I think Vince McMahon's never going to sell WWE in his lifetime. I think Vince McMahon really wants control. I think he values the control that he has in WWE above anything else, above any dollar value that any, anyone could put in front of him. So I think as long as he's healthy enough to control WWE, he will never sell it. So it, it raises some of the questions of what would it be like if they were under the same umbrella? So mm-hmm. uh, for one thing, you know, you could imagine, imagine the sports television deal you could sort of negotiate if you were saying, I can bundle, I can give you a UFC deal and a WWE deal, or if you're trying to um, almost bifurcate and say, let's make sure we can keep this television network strong with this property and this one strong with this property, and we will have the back end of the content so we can even do some kind of secret cross promotion. Um, we, we see that cross promotion all the time. You know, football is always plugging whatever else is on that network there saying, you know, tune in and watch this show as this happens and so forth. So there would be that value of saying, you know, it would be big for WWE to talk about when John Jones has a big fight. And it would be big for UFC to be able to talk about when WWE has a big match coming see, up. I, that, I think that I think UFC would, would not want to, to do that. I think. Oh, I'm not saying they want to do that. I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about the difference between your corporate parent sure. and your parent. Sure. You know, this is. This is I, I agree with you there, which is I don't think Dana White could live in that organization where they're trying to merge those two visions. But I think from a financial standpoint, where if you are trying to negotiate television deals and you're trying to negotiate cross promotion and licensing, there's a lot of opportunity there. Because just think about the way WWE runs their developmental and the way UFC runs their developmental. There's going to be guys that are going to be good fits for either company. And imagine if you had a feeder system that in some ways could almost switch you and bring you to the right one. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, you know, we talk about what if guys in in UFC could learn to do promos the way they need to do promos and had that kind of background. What if um, think about all the different marketplaces that they 
branched into. In some ways, they're exceptionally different. Brazil is enormous with UFC, right? WWE has almost no Brazilian penetration. Uh, uh, Mexico is a place where where uh, UFC has spent some resources trying to get in. Uh, Canada obviously gets hot and cold with UFC over time. Europe, they're running all these shows. Asia, they're running shows. Australia, they're doing a great job of of kind of developing things going on there. Women fighters, you know, I, I think that there's some elements there where you could say, look at what WWE is doing really well in country X. Look what UFC does well in country Y. And if you were to combine some of that understanding in that marketplace in those contexts, you could actually really grow both businesses, in my opinion. But again. I never see it happening because UFC took on an enormous amount of debt to be purchased and they already had an enormous amount of debt. And so the idea that this company would then double down with essentially something that would cost, in my opinion, at least two and a half to four billion dollars to really wrangle out of them, uh, plus probably leaving some stake in the, the McMahon family there for them to be able to continue to cash out on this deal. Uh, it just wouldn't happen because they, they had a hard enough time putting together this UFC deal that in itself was probably overvalued. Uh, there would be no way that I could see them ever doubling down and going to this unless it's a complete Ponzi scheme. <laughs> and and I, I think just if something like this were to happen, I think it would be – and if WME IMG expected UFC to kind of co-promote WWE and be a, a sister company to WWE, I think it would be bad for WWE, it, at least in the, in the, in the culture – that I live in, I think there would be a lot of people who would, if if WWE and UFC became really closely associated like that on UFC's programming, I think you would create a vibe of like, wait a minute, they're they're pushing WWE all the time. What is going on here? Maybe some of them would just, you know, well, but cause imagine a world casual fans to start raising questions about, well, maybe this fight is fixed. I mean, you know how people are on. Sure, you know? sure. But uh, imagine a world where Shane McMahon did buy Pride, you know, and what would have happened in that direction. And in the evolution of MMA, because there's always that, too, where you don't have to have UFC as UFC. What if it was Pride or something else that they were spinning off? And that was the associated cross promotion. Uh, you know, I, you can get really fancy here. It, it's it's a it's a fun uh, thought exercise and a fun fun, you know, instead of uh, booking Confederates, let's have HBO fund that show instead. But um you know, it would be it would be like Ballers version two, where it's it's the same kind of absurd characters, but now it's MMA fighters and wrestlers instead of uh, football players. But you know, it, it's not happening. So I I, I get that, but I, I just thought it was kind of fun to uh, consider that. And no, I do not think that WME IMG is going to be the company that will want to purchase WWE. Though, if they a talent agency were to get a big stake in WWE, I think they would have better roles for these uh, actors. I think they would have a better they'd be able to negotiate a SAG agreement to get out of the independent contractor status. You know, you, you would see a lot of changes to how an entertainment company that knows how to run entertainment or allegedly knows how to run entertainment runs a sports entertainment company. Well, and as you say, it's, it's fun investor fanfic, isn't it? Well, it would, you know, it would, because it would be good. For the does it make price. more sense? Does it make more sense for money aside? Okay. Let's assume both companies had a, had, a, had the balance sheet to absorb it. Mm-hmm. Would you see a Facebook or let's say an Amazon, an Amazon, a Disney or a mega talent agency, maybe a, or, or a, a Viacom or a mega talent agency? I'll give you those four choices to, to do which to one of those to purchase, think? which would be best to purchase, which would, which would be best to exploit WWE as a business. Yeah, yeah. It depends on what what year we're in, I guess. I guess further further we go into history, I guess the more more in favor it is for Amazon. Um, 
maybe right yeah. right now, maybe Disney, just because they have the television outlets and they could put them on. I don't know. Yeah, they've done a great job with the Muppets. <laughs> and, and Star Wars. Well, I'm, I was giving you an underhand compliment about the Muppets, but yeah. <laughs> Star Wars, I think they've done a, a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all criticisms aside, they, they are getting now a pipeline that is is pretty robust for them. If anything, they're underutilizing some of their ability to, to uh, merchandise it with their theme parks. And so they're finally investing heavily in that. I mean, I think the biggest mistake Disney's made le- recently is the whole um, uh, Avatar land that just, you know, is such a... They, they blew the Harry Potter deal and ended up with an Avatar land. And I just don't think you can think of something more hilariously inept than that. So, so which, yeah. which of the four do you think would be best? <sighs> Honestly, um, I think the Amazon, uh, just because I, I think I think the future of of all of this is OTT bundling. Yeah, and uh, I think you know getting into live sports is interesting because uh, both Netflix and Amazon have basically said they'd have no interest in doing it. <laughs> that they have no interest in that kind of live programming. That's why they've. They've doubled down. I mean, I just heard a whole thing about how uh, Larry Oracle, Larry Ellison's daughter. So Larry Ellison from Oracle, who's a billionaire, his daughter, who's worth a lot, just started her own movie company. And uh, the, the, the name of the company is terrible. It's like Anapova Productions or Anaporna Productions or something. It's, it's a really dumb name. Um, but w- basically, they were behind marketing some really interesting movies and they got really fed up with the fact that they just kind of kept getting their legs cut out from under them. So they worked on like Sausage Party and they worked on, um, uh, I think, Zero Dark Thirty and a lot of other things, but they weren't part of the whole stream kind of beginning to end. And so now they've decided to basically go the entire stream where they're going to do the distribution. They're going to do the, you know, get them into the to the theaters and do all the, you know, rather than having to deal with the studio and let them d- dictate when this gets released. And so Detroit uh, is the new movie that's coming out right now that's being done through her company. Anna I think it's going to be a, thank, thank you. Yes. It's not a good name in my opinion. The um, owner is Megan Ellison. Yeah. Larry's daughter. And so, uh, it's, it's interesting because it's a good example of someone being like, I have a lot of money. I'm going to just invest and kind of get into the space and I'm going to figure out the way I'm going to do something. And, um, it, it intrigues me just because it's, it's someone really pushing against the system, but it says a lot about, you know, you have to be, uh, you have to be rich to be in this. And the problem they're having now is they say that Netflix and Amazon are going to these film festivals and they're buying everything up and they're bidding up the cost of some some of this independent content. And it's becoming a, a struggle for these smaller houses to almost get the content for distribution. And so they're instead trying to find creators themselves and work with the creators to then kind of take it from birth to, to finish. And so they were saying, like, they're working with Catherine Bigelow a lot on this this Detroit project, and they'd worked with her in earlier films. And so it's this idea to say it's tough right now to be in the content chain where you're just acquiring because um, right now these OTD companies are almost bidding up content so much that it's, A, it's becoming a huge um, a burden on their balance sheet, which was the whole Netflix has X many billion dollars of, of, of obligations right now in their balance sheet discussion. But also the discussion about, you know, what is it, where's the right place to be in the OTT chain? And so I would see someone like Amazon getting in here, well, you're at least getting this really good content really cheap. The problem is, of course, the way this content is valued right now is essentially by the by the uh, the distributors more than the producers, right? So it's valued by the TV rights being so high, not rather by 
you know, people spending a ton of money on wrestling all the time. So that's my so that's why I'd go with the Amazon is to me. That's a way of kind of getting downstream to undercut uh, the overbidding of of future content fees. But, uh, you know, that's a abstract analogy where I just kicked out like five articles that I never even told you to read before this. <laughs> but you can tell you can tell I've been listening to my my audible yeah. subscription where I get to we, listen to the Wall Street Journal and the uh, New York Times headlines while I drive home. We, we convert and, them uh, to vinyl. You play them on your uh, your automobile uh, record player, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good time for me. So. Um, let's talk. So we, we got through that. Let's talk a little bit about new Japan. It seems like this G1 tournament has been a uh, pretty, pretty successful. And, uh, I'll even throw in some WrestleNomics when we're done with this, but why don't you talk a little bit about it? Sure. Well, the, the G1, uh, we're in the middle of the G1 climax right now. It's, it's a, for the last three years, including this year for 2015, 16 and 17, it's been a 19 day tour. Um, and so in 2015, the total attendance was about 70,000. Next year, 2016, the total attendance was about uh, 74,000. And it looks like this year uh, we're not done yet. We've got, uh, I'm not sure exactly how many events. There's only a a small handful of events left, and we're getting close to doing the three days at the Sumo Hall at the end. Uh, And and I I projected that we're going to, New Japan G1 Climax for 2017 is going to do a total of attendance of of about 77,000. So that's a little bit above what it did the year prior and even a little bit above what it did the year before that. So what we're seeing is this is this big tournament every year for for New Japan that starts in late July, ends in in early to mid-August. And it's doing a little bit better and a little bit better every year. So it looks like, you know, New Japan's attendance is, is, is doing well year after year. So business... And that that's kind of that reflects, I think, the uh, what we see when we count up total attendance, or just when we study attendance for New Japan, uh, going back to 2015, 2016, 2017. It looks like attendance does a little bit better every year, so their business is 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 going pretty well. Uh, Do you think if Tanahashi had stayed off as an injured competitor, attendance would be as good? For the if he if he wasn't on this tour, that's, yeah, that's if, a good if because he had his big injury, he said he felt pressure that he had to come back and do this and do the u.s shows yeah and uh so he's wrestling her and he's he's on all the shows he's seeing it up um it certainly do you think it's like brock lesnar not being on the w network i think it certainly wouldn't help but i don't know would it would it even be up would it just be flat maybe if tanahashi wasn't there i don't know i mean in the end I think Okada is decisively the number one star now, and I think Kenny Omega has really emerged, if not in Japan globally, as a as a valuable star for them. Um, oh, for sure. I think I think the the Okada and Naito has Omega really emerged as well. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think the, the 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 challenge between the two is definitely you know kept it lively, and and even having an outsider like Ibushi, I think helps as well. Yeah, yeah. Because I think I think he he's he wasn't a big... in it, he wasn't in it at all last year. Yeah, so I, I think I think they're adding elements. I do think it would have been hard for them to be higher than they were because I, I do think that the the injury to Shibata and the injury to um, who's the other person I'm thinking of Hamna. Hamna, yeah, yeah. Hamna, you know, a, that, a minor star. I think Shibata. I don't think Shibata is really a, a difference maker, although he's he's approaching the border. Here he was. I think. He I meant more in the sense of um, it's bad PR for your company when you're losing stars to injuries like that. And then if Tanahashi stayed out, you know, I think there would have been a lot more headlines about how, you know, New Japan's not safe and this and that. So 
uh, it, it's interesting to me. I did some metrics um, taking all of Meltzer's ratings, and I went through and I basically said, okay, what is everyone's you know star match against each other? It's n- it's lovely because everyone gets a singles match against each other, and you can pretty much rate them all. And um, unlike WWE, where you know there's tons of people that never do singles matches against each other, and if they do, they do in the same match against each other a lot over time, and then. You know, faces and heels matter so much. So you have a lot of guys that, you know, might still be active and working at the same time, but aren't in necessarily wrestling each other. Is this something like Dolph uh, Ziggler versus Kofi Kingston has happened hundreds of times? Yes, exactly. And so whereas, you know, like my earlier example of a Curtis Axel or something, you know, Curtis Axel versus um, Nakamura, you know, we, we probably never will see. So. It, that's that's Shame. tough. So it's fun. It's fun with this. So what I did was I said basically, okay, what is the average here? And then I went through and I said, okay, what is the average when a guy, his opponents, what is their average of their matches when they don't wrestle him? And then when they do wrestle him, what's their average? And then how much does he seem to improve them? And then what is your personal average? And so it's interesting. So I'll give an example, like a guy like Michael Elgin. When Michael Elgin. Uh, his personal average on the for the matches that have been rated so far was a 4.1 stars. When you take the guys that Michael Elgin has wrestled, they average a uh, 3.57. If you look at all the um, the opponents, all their matches, what their average is when you include him, but only a 3.44 when you exclude him. And so essentially you could say he's adding 0.13 stars to this person's rating. Now, again, it's a quarter star kind of incremental system. So nobody was really doing more than um, uh, 0.13 at Kota Ibushi positive was the highest. The lowest, on the other hand, but Bad Luck Fale and Toro Yano, uh, Bad Luck Fale uh, seemed to take away 0.2 star, so almost a quarter star. And Toro Yano, who only has a 1.85 average for this tournament so far, uh, usually took his opponents down from a 3.95 average to a 3.53 average, meaning he injured, he took them down by almost 0.4 stars. And so intuitively this list made some sense because you would say, yeah, if I were to say who's having, who's causing guys to have the worst matches, you'd say Yano is, um, or at least let me rephrase that. Who's causing guys to have matches that Dave Meltzer, uh, rates there lowest, yes. uh, would be Yano. Um, Let's and hence for all, the, for all the, the big Yano fans out there, come on. Yeah. Hence the controversy over, uh, uh Omega Yano with the, the, the tape and the bouncing and all that. Um, but it, it, it was interesting there. And so it was, intriguing when you set up a system like this kind of indubitably uh you you create a line where you say you know this many guys are going to be above the line and this many guys are going to be below the line so even if when you have 20 some guys that you're looking at you're going to put some guys that are below that line even if they're quote-unquote good because you're you're kind of saying what's the average some guys have to be a little above below otherwise if everyone is really clustered there there's almost no effect they're having on each other in theory behind this model and so uh it's interesting to see that, you know, the positive guys are Abushi, Ishii, Okada, Elgin, Tanahashi, um, maybe Sonata, uh, and Suzuki. And the negative guys, like I said, are Yano, Fale, uh, to a much lesser deg- degree, uh, Tamatanga. And then Evil and Makabe and Yoshihashi and Zack Sabre Jr. were all at this 0.05 level, 0.06, 0.07 level, which is very tiny. 
but of course everyone was freaking out about the fact that evil who they felt was fantastic so far in this tournament was doing so poorly and of course Zack Sabre Jr. seeing him in a negative number made people you know again uncomfortable because of course he has to be good um, and it's well, it's an arbitrary thing on a very small subset it's, of it's just of the fact is about half of the people are going to be below average because that's that's how math works you know even though maybe all these you know almost all these wrestlers are are among the best wrestlers in the world Half exactly, and I mean, in this account, you know, account of it. When you look at the personal average here for these matches, and everyone with the exception of Yano and Evil has a three point one five or higher, with uh, Nato, uh, Naito, uh, Goto, uh, Yuji Nagata, uh, Elgin, Okada, Ishii, Abushi, all well over four star averages. I mean. That to me is what the difference is. Is it's like, you know, who in WWE right now has an average of more than a three star on their matches? And it would probably be about AJ Styles only if you're going to look at a certain subset and Nakamura maybe because um he he hasn't had that many matches. And then what are you looking at? Like TV match? Like Dave doesn't even yep. rate most TV matches. He just exactly. TV matches. But. So it, it, that's why I say something like the G1 is kind of fun because a it's a uh, a very certain time period which is the other problem where if I do this on WWE, I have to look over almost 10 years to get a big data set, you know? Yeah. And at that point, you know, are, is it really fair to compare John Cena of 2005 to John Cena of 2014? Or is, is it very different in terms of, you know, this? Versus when you're looking over one summer at 20 guys, 10 of which are going to wrestle each other and, and in each block. What, like, this is five matches a night over 19 nights. I think that's like 95 matches, right? Yes, but I'm excluding all the tag matches. Oh, yeah, that's all I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, okay, the yeah. tournament matches. Yeah, so I, I love that. So it, it was funny. It was interesting. I did a very similar one on um, on the actual uh, star ratings uh, from the Observer from 2007 to 2017. And I looked at time versus stars. And then basically you can create a curve from that and say, if I give you this many minutes, this is how good of a match I expect you to have. Then uh, on a singles match. Uh, and then I can say, okay, who is below that curve and who is above that curve? So who who send, tends to have a quote unquote Dave Meltzer approved match if they're under ten minutes, and who has a Dave Meltzer's uh, uh, dud match? And so I found that Kane Abyss and Matt Morgan uh, performed under their peers given the same time, whereas someone like Ishii, Hamna, Will Osprey, Kamatachi, uh, all did better than their peers did with the same amount of time. And then um, I even went as far as to say, okay, is there anything going on here about, you know, are there people that actually seem to have a better average when they're losing than when they're winning? And, you know, I found that, like, the people that were better at winning matches, i.e. that their matches are rated higher when they win, were Undertaker, Bully Ray, Eric Young, AJ, St or, I'm sorry, AJ Lee, Madison Rain, Robbie E. Bailey. So some of these are, you can tell, I'm, I'm getting into some very distinct TNA singles matches, because, you know, especially in TNA, they loved having those multi-man matches, which were probably excluded from my data. Whereas, who was better losers than winners was Kane, Neville, um, Mickey James, and Cesaro. And it's interesting in that aspect to say, is there really a difference between how you rate a match, whether a person wins or loses? Because a lot of times you don't really care, right? But um, it was just interesting there to see, you know, Undertaker and someone like Undertaker, obviously he wins most of his big WrestleMania matches. He has these classic matches with the Shawn Michaels of the world. And so, of course, he's going to come out looking really good in these quote unquote matches that he wins. So I think that's a lot of it. Um but it, it was interesting to see. I kind guess of that, just, that's all of the Undertaker streak matches and WrestleMania included in that. Then, 
Exactly. So that's going to obviously impact it pretty heavy. And then, of course, when he loses, a good example of losing was his match against Roman Reigns, which was then he did worse than average. So then it, it makes his worst number, his losing numbers look worse. And then, you know, Taker doesn't have a lot of paper or any, any hardly any matches besides the WrestleMania matches to water down his big. Well, match. I did 07 to 14. So I, I think people forget that the Taker still wrestled a lot, even through 12, yeah. 13. You know, he yeah. was doing programs. He was even champion and, you know, did everything from terrible buried to live programs with Kane to, you know, pretty good matches with, um, uh, some other people, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, you know, I remember you wrestled the Wyatt family one time. Uh, I, I think, uh, Luke Harper was scared out of his mind being picked upside down by a guy the size of Undertaker. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy time. Um, but you know, stats can tell you anything. I, I just, as a joke, sent you a stat that showed that the gas price in Buffalo is higher when Roman Reigns wins versus the gas price in Buffalo when Roman Reigns loses. So you've added the inner workings of my radical agenda. This is why I'm so negative. All this negativity I I, uh, direct towards Roman Reigns is because he's clearly influencing the price of gas when I have to, you know, fill up my my car with gas around here. Because every time he wins, the price of gas goes up, and every time he loses, the price of gas goes down. So, of course, I, uh, I, I I am very low on Roman Reigns. So, yeah, so that that's the kind of analysis that you can do, even though when I looked at the R squared value, I think it was less than 1.01, meaning nothing. But when you look at the, uh, you know, when you just average wins over average losses because uh, a time difference is going on there and because he wins a whole lot more than he loses, then you get a different story. So and I, I, I guess just in thought, all seriousness, like that's um, it gives you an idea of, you know, how you can find a pattern even when there really isn't a meaning, meaningful pattern, you know. Well, like Eva Marie left on Friday and WWE right, stock <laughs> dropped almost 2%. And, you know, I, I jokingly, I will admit this now, jokingly tweeted out, <laughs> coincidence, I think not. And, I did some uh, numbers I think, on Twitter. And uh, Ryan Satin and some other people retweeted me. And I fully believe everyone who retweeted me that follows me knew exactly what I was trying to do there. However... In the the interim, as more and more people retweeted this and more and more of their followers responded, I got some people saying, no, this is only 39 cents. You're making a mountain over a molehill or uh, this is are you serious, bro? Or, you know, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. And did Eva Maria Stan Twitter, though, get a hold of it and be like, yes. I did see people then, of course, people also, yes, also like would retweet it and and tag her. And there's I don't think there's anything that drives me more nuts than when, you know, I will tweet something and then they will try to include that person in the conversation. Yeah. And I don't know. I I, I understand why some people do it it. anyway. I mean, some people are like I get people tagging Roman Reigns. It's like is Roman Reigns really looking at all of his Twitter notifications like he's got thousands of them a day. That's why Jericho blocked me, and it was for something I didn't even Jericho tweet to him. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was a, a Raw one time where it did, like, its lowest number it ever done, and the third hour was a Talk is Jericho segment after he had been on the first hour, and it was really bad. And I just uh, – I tweeted, thanks, Jericho, and I, I took a screen cap of the F4W quotes, you know, basically saying, look at lowest number, and then it said the third hour was basically this Jericho segment. Yeah. And I was just like, because at the time, I, he was, I just thought it was a real waste of everything. And then someone retweeted it, tagged Jericho in it, and then now I'm blocked by Jericho. <laughs> so I'm just yeah. like, I wasn't trying to pick a fight with the guy. I wasn't trying to, you know, 
poke him with a bear, but other people do. And so it's funny sometimes how that happens. But, you know, it is what it is. It, uh, that's the the uh, democratization of social media is that people have the opportunity to interact with people in a new way. And it's silly sometimes because you can definitely see that there's some hounding that sometimes goes on where people just want attention. And, I, I'm uh, blocked by JBL. I think that's as far as people uh, of note in wrestling. I think that's it. I have, I am, I'm followed by a few WWE superstars yeah. and not the ones you would even think I'd be followed by. Um, but, uh, I, I will occasionally get messages from people who are like, how can I also be followed by this person? <laughs> I'll just be like, uh, be interesting. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't know why someone chooses to follow me or not. Like I had a guy who I swear I, I could be wrong, but I swear it was, Le, Le, um, Latrell Sprewell, I think is his name. He was the guy who was famous for choking his coach, uh, the uh, the basketball oh, yeah, player. Yeah, yeah. I swear, and I it was one of these things where I was like, I think you're you're not really him, but <laughs> I, I swear it was him or something. He contacted me once and was asking me about uh about how to do. It. I'm I'm looking up now to see if in fact this is um is him and the same guy. No, it's well. Let's see here. It, the guy is uh, uh verified now. Maybe I'm thinking of someone else. Rich is going to be so sad that I, I had an interaction with like an NBA player and I forgot who it was. He's going to be like, what are you doing, man? L- L- Latrell Sprewell is the guy who got choked, right? It's yeah, yeah. But sure I'm, I, can't re- I just can't remember whether it was actually him or whether it was somebody else who also had like... Marlissimo was the coach, yeah. Uh, but anyhow, so we got way off, off base here from whatever my point was originally. But uh, yes, that was my, my Eva Marie tweet, which I thought it was funny that not only was it that she, she left, not only was it that WWE stock was down, but on the finance page, the top story in the WWE news happened to be the Eva Marie story, which is always what's funny to me when the, the finance pages aggregate, you know, I don't think WWE might be the most, I wonder if there's other companies that are as difficult to follow because of the um, the interest in their fans versus the economics of the business. Because obviously with WWE, if you, it's so hard to find the financial stuff because there's so many wrestling news sites out there. I wonder if there's other businesses that kind of struggle that same way because you, you have to the, – the financial bots have to sort through so much data to try to find the financial articles versus just the wrestling news articles or the kayfabe articles. Yeah, it, it, well, it seems like a lot of the stuff. So we're talking about um, when you look at WWE's stock on, say, Google, and they show on the right sidebar a bunch of news articles. And they try to, in, in Google's case, they try to associate these news articles with, you know, points on the graph where the stock, you know, is, is going up or down. Like they have, you know, it, right, you know, in the screenshot we're looking at, there's like the letter A, and it's like Eva Marie you announced she's leaving WWE, and then they'll try to, like, put that, the, the, the minute that that news story was posted, they'll try to put that on, on the graph in terms of time, and then you can look at, well, okay, how did the stock react, which, you know, I, I think they're, they're pulling from um, not, you know, it's, it's always non-wrestling media sources, like it's not wrestling news sites that they pull from, it's like mainstream news. It was heavy.com was the last one right, that they Right, which is not a wrestling news Ah, alas, it appears the Latrell Sprewell account I was interacting with has been suspended and uh, was probably a fake. So I uh, I I am disappointed to announce that Latrell Sprewell was not trying to find out how to uh, get certain WWE superstars to follow them. So exclusive news story anyway. Yeah. So so uh, I have to break and unbreak my own news here. So I'm so sorry, everyone. Uh, 
but now I now I don't feel bad about uh, revealing it since it turned out to be a fake. So I didn't I did not portray uh, confidences here, and I do not need to be investigated by the VOW board of leaks. Yeah. Speaking of uh, things that leak, you can leak a little money out of your uh, your pocketbook just by supporting the WrestleNomics podcast right. <laughs> over at uh how, how do you like to say it Patreon 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 yeah. uh, patreon.com slash WrestleNomics and uh, both Brandon and I have set up a site here a page where we're saying you know if you're interested in the economics and business professional wrestling you listen to a podcast just like ours say WrestleNomics radio mm-hmm. maybe you want to support us as we endeavor to give you more and more of these episodes, more and more of these news, more and more of these Latrell Sprewell fake account stories. Uh, and you, you can do that by, by throwing some money our way, which is uh, when we reach certain goals, we'll be contributing more to this project. So be it going weekly, be it creating more audiovisual content, or be it we produce a, a binder's worth of uh, information every show about all the articles and the the thoughts that we have on these articles in our notes. And we share those with our our, our patrons to um, see and read and, and kind of learn about what it is that we're doing. So if you're watching the show, you can see how quickly we veer off topic, but also uh, some of the articles and the things that we're pointing to. And, you know, if we ever get really good at it, we'll even update it with all the articles that Mookie ends up mentioning at during the podcast that he never even thought that he would mention during the show, like uh, the articles about Larry Ellison's daughter. There you go. And you, you'll get access to our Google Docs, right? Which has, has all these, we're, like, we're looking at, as we do this show, we're looking at a number of charts so that if, if you become a patron, you can get access to that and, and get a little bit more insight into exactly what we're talking about here. So anyhow, so check us out, uh, patreon.com slash Russellnomics. You can find us there. You can always email us at, you know, russellnomics.gmail.com, things like that. We'll continue with the show. I just wanted to plug that in the middle this time yeah. for all those people that, that tuned out, you know, at the end of the show last time. So now everyone knows in the middle we got to sneak them in like we're, you know, Blue Apron or something. There you go. Uh, talk to me a little bit about um, this interview. Uh, we talked about Smash. You know, it's a Canadian Fed uh, that has been operating in the Toronto, Ontario area, books a lot of Western New York talent. A lot of people that come from Western New York or come through in Western New York spend some time up in Smash. They book uh, a handful me... of people from around here, which would include like Braxton Sutter, Kevin Blackwood, Kevin Bennett, and they they use um Andy Williams from the band Every Time I Die, who's gotten into wrestling. Uh, what about? But I mean, in old days, didn't Ty Dillinger used to work out of there? And... He certainly worked in the area. He he probably I don't know if he ever worked for Smash. If Smash because Smash Smash only started I think in like 2012 or so. So Ty Dillinger, I know I know he had two WWE stints, but. But yeah, but but Ty Dillinger, uh, when he he worked in like Southern Ontario as as Sean Spears, he, I'm sure he worked everywhere in, in Southern Ontario. Cool. So uh, tell me a little bit about this interview he did on the Fight Network with. Um, it was actually on the same ish uh, episode as the when one of the, one of the Dave Meltzer uh, ones. So I'm sure yeah. it got a little bit more listenership than normal. But about an hour in, he came on, talked a lot about uh, the Canadian wrestling scene and and his experience as a promoter. So, yeah, so he did an interview with Live Audio Wrestling. I think the interview was with John Pollock. Um, and he just made some some comments that I thought were really interesting. So so Smash, if you don't know, Smash Wrestling, this, this Toronto-based Super India, is, is gotten on weekly TV on the Fight Network. So now they're, they're airing right after TNA or right after Impact airs on the Fight Network in Canada. Um, and I, I, I thought he, he, made, he was just doing an interview about, I think, kind of promoting that, that they're on um, 
that they're on the Fight Network now. But he, he made some really interesting comments where he, so he's been a, so this is from the promoter of Smash Wrestling, Sebastian Suave. And he made some interesting comments just from the perspective of a, a an independent wrestling promoter who's trying to appeal, uh, you know, to a wide audience throughout the world um, and, and, and as well as people with, within the immediate area. Um, and he kind of made the point that there were five or six true needle movers, he said, uh, at some point about two years ago before WWE started signing all this indie talent. And he said they were people like Kevin Owens, AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, the Young Bucks. And I think later on in the interview, he kind of implies that Chris Hero was one as well. So these are people who you book them and, and it really, he saw, and, and a lot of other promoters saw, uh, you know, an uptick in their attendance and, and other things. Um, and, he, and he said something later too about how, you know, when he, I think he was, he was referring to a, a seminar that Sammy Callahan did uh, before one of his shows where, you know, Sammy Callahan was were, was talking to these students and uh, basically saying that, you know, this day and age, you know, you've got to, you know, take gifts kind of seriously. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you go out and do a stupid move or a stupid dive, but that you got to understand what what the media environment is that, that you're working in and, and uh, become somebody who can get on the gifts that, uh, you know, somebody like a, a jockey on Twitter or Senior Lariato, or he's Mr. Lariato now. And, and it's really valuable to be gifted by those people because they're fo- followed by thousands of people, if not tens of thousands of people. And that's where, you know, somebody can pick up traction uh, in, in this, this world of hardcore fandom. It's where somebody can really start to, to get a buzz about themselves. So Do you and, agree? I, Do you agree? Yeah, I, th- I think that's one element. And, and, and uh, you know, you know, working hard and, and pushing yourself on social media and, and traveling and not just sticking to your to your local area, to your local region, uh, are other parts of it. Do you agree? All business is good. All publicity is good publicity, right? Well, most uh, of it is. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's funny because I I my my two worlds are of course this wrestle. Well, my three worlds are my wrestling world, my comedy world, and my business world. You know, like what I actually do all day, and um. When you try to promote, it's important to find ways to make people care about what it is you're doing. And it it can be as simple as, you know, having a joke that then people notice and then, you know, retweet on Twitter and then you have a presence that's going to show up. I think it's interesting. The difference in some promotions is the difference between search engine history and Twitter um, zeitgeist. Because I feel like gifts are really big in zeitgeist. You know, you see it, you you latch on, you're interested, you're intrigued by it. And maybe someone goes back and writes an article about it. And then you get like, you know, if you, you Google, you'll find like an article about a Ricochet Will Osprey match. And they'll talk about that or the Joey Ryan penis suplex or something. And there'll be articles about that. But a lot of times it's very zeitgeist versus other kinds of things are like, you know, if someone gets their club reviewed or their troop reviewed, that lives on the web forever. And when someone searches for you just to find directions to your place, first thing that happens is, you know, that review comes up near the top and it's intriguing because that doesn't happen so much with, you know, a gif of something. And so uh, for wrestlers, sometimes it's almost like I wonder what would happen if you're searching for Paige or Alberto Del Rio or something like that. And what is going to be the stories that come up on top? Uh, will it be wrestling centric or will it be, you know, uh, drama centric? And, um, sure. you know, that's, I would say that, that articles are even more powerful and that's what you're saying right well i'm just saying they they play in different ways so one is very big about when i know who you are um but i want more about you it pops out and it's interesting when there's a negative hit on that and how that can affect your club or your place 
versus gifts are very much like it's that the the it's candy you know it's it's consumable but in a lot of ways it's not memorable and so what's interesting is how do you convert something that is memorable into something that is um valuable and but i agree in the sense that well, i think uh, it, it uh, takes it, it it's it's about being the kind of person that's getting gift a lot i mean one, one gift is nice but one gift isn't going to make a huge difference well and it's it's the buzzfeed world right where you actually will see an article that is just 10 gifts from 30 rock you know it'll be like days that you feel like this and so it's that same idea with wrestling where it's like you know the 10 gifts are going to just tell the story themselves and so um I, from a promoter standpoint yeah i think it's huge i i think though the challenge is who is producing these gifts who is doing it is it the fans themselves that are recording this and uploading it or is it the you know the the promotions themselves that are promoting the people well i think it's it's both right the the ones that i was just talking about when it when it's you know mr lariato or when it's jockey which are these two twitter accounts that do a lot of gifting and there's others as well a lot of it is fan uh i know about a year ago we had w uh they got was it death to all marks which is another twitter account and and the then Senor Lariat, so they, they W got them shut down because they were, you know, the argument was they were basically, you know, stealing. Let's be clear here. Yeah. The company that WWE has hired to monitor trademarks got them shut down. Oh, is that the case? Is there, is there documentation yeah. of that? Yeah, yeah, because if you look at where the shutdown notices came from, I don't oh. believe they came from WWE. They came from the content company that WWE has hired to help them patrol their content mm -hmm. violations on the web. Okay. So I'll, I, I just want to give that, you know, that extra three inches to say they gave the rights for somebody else to go patrol the web on their behalf. And that company made that decision to do that. And WWE absolutely is accountable for who they hire and how those people act. But you know, it, it was a subcontracted job. WWE doesn't do this as far as I know very much anymore because they realized it was too big of a job. And so they, they hired kind of these trademark infringement firms to help them on their behalf. Okay. Well, so, so the, I get the point that I'm getting at is I think, I think if you look at, well, New Japan has gotten much more popular with English-speaking fans in the last few years, and I think a, a, a big reason that that's been able to happen is because of gifts. And this is kind of a point that uh, Sebastian Swab makes in this in this interview where he kind of says, you know, I, mean, I think a lot of people's introduction to New Japan or to some of the wrestlers uh, in New Japan was that the first thing maybe they saw were, were gifts maybe on Twitter or, or elsewhere. So that, And you realize people are listening to this, and right now they're just spending all their time writing us angry emails about why we're not saying gifs or yeah i'm or... not gonna i'm not gonna say gif though unless we're talking <laughs> about peanut butter <laughs> i'm with you i call them gifs as well so yeah I'm, and i, and I know, supposedly like the the creator of gifs says gif but it just i don't know i don't, I don't well, know they... it sounds like peanut butter come on uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just like i like derailing you in the middle of your rants it's fun you. for me thank you so and but so, I, so anyway but the point was like I, I think that's what's i think you know I think it almost like, you know, Kadani should, you know, kind of owes Mr. Lairato some money because, I mean, these are accounts that have done a lot, I think, to create a buzz and to create a groundswell uh, around New Japan. And I don't, I don't think every person, every English-speaking person who subscribes to New Japan World has necessarily seen one of those gifts, but maybe uh, the reason why they found out about it was through somebody else who has and, and so forth. So I think, but the, the point that uh, Swab is making in, in the interview is that, you know, maybe, 
you know, your first interactions with New Japan where you, you saw some gifts. I mean, kind of like you see uh, sports highlights and maybe through some sports highlights, you, be, you become a, a big fan of some big sports star like LeBron James or something like that. And so like before you know it, you're you check out maybe a, a YouTube video of a, of a free match that they released. Like I think they just released the Tanahashi and, and Ibushi match from the G1 in its entirety on YouTube. So maybe you start so, doing that. And then before you know it, you're subscribing to NJPW World. You're, you're going on Pro Wrestling Tees or whatever, and you're buying New Japan wrestlers, T-shirts, and, and so forth. So what I'm hearing you say is when UFC buys WWE for uh, and WME is running it, they should have a GIF of the week, and it will be produced by Senior Lariato, and uh, it will be the best wrestling move that week that was produced, and it will show during the UFC fight, and then we'll do the same thing on the, the WWE Raw broadcast. Am I, am I getting this correct? Well, how would that help? I think <laughs> it's got to be organic for one thing. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. And and it's funny because you say Kadani uh, owes him money. It, it's an interesting argument about, you know, kind of where the new media creation standards sit in terms of how do you monetize anything? And, you know, what's the value that someone is adding by choosing what they distribute? And I, and I think uh, we're getting to the point where, like, I think this uh, Mr. Jockey, I think he's from the New York City area or something approximately in that area. And I think he's been essentially booked by promotions to come and, you know, take a smartphone and uh you know cap capture clips of 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 the shows it's like being a celebrity influencer right it's like it's, it's kind of like being like, a, a, it's almost like being a you know a tv channel or a, i guess like a sports center like you you want somebody who's got you know a lot of influence and access to a lot of impressions to be at your show to capture the, the video clips of, of what's going on and to post those in to, to all their followers to get all those impressions and to hopefully create some buzz about your promotion. You can almost see a, a world where Twitter then, you know, is hiring these sort of people to kind of help them with their content, you know, aggregation and creation so that it's helping them w when they're trying to search for that new exciting content that gets people to spend more time on Twitter and look at paid ads, you know, that they, they're looking for the people that are producing that. And the, the, you almost have like that new brand of YouTube. So it's Chocolate Rain version two is is the gifable Twitter guy. Mm -hmm. but, and that, and uh, that's why W should uh, contact us. And uh, well, at least you, you're, you're willing to uh, to take a payment, right? So we can become the uh, co-opted media. Are you saying that you are unwilling to work for the World Wrestling Federation, Titan Sports Incorporated, the World Wrestling Federation Entertainment Incorporated? Corporation, what, what, WWF, WWE, WCW Inc. What are they going to hire me to they do? Have like, a, what skills do I have to offer Vince McMahon? Come on. Well, they have a whole WWE Studios division, and they're looking for yeah. a fall guy. And they're interested in fall you guy? as said fall guy. Yeah. To, to, no. I, I, I know they put out that post, uh, that, that job post a while ago. Like, hey, if you love Excel and you like just going through the WWE Network and indexing all of our programming for us, apply to this job. So maybe, maybe that, but I don't know. I, I don't think I could ever work for a wrestling company, like a major wrestling company. I feel like I would I would be constantly like, oh, my God, what are they doing? And I would just become disgruntled and feeling like I'm part of the, the problem rather than being on the outside, uh, being one of these smart fans who uh, – piles criticism towards these promotions or something to that effect so do you think that i i feel that i'm i'm helping the world through my podcast i i assumed wow that's interesting i i guess i never thought i don't think of myself as being the smart fan in that sense of um you know railing against the machine to make things better or worse uh you know i i if anything i'm i'm fascinated by the idea of a corporate wrestling company and you know just the structure of people who 
this is the product that they create and they influence people with. And, you know, I've worked in grocery, I've worked in law firms, I've worked in medical devices. And, you know, sometimes you feel good about what you're doing and sometimes you don't. And so I'm always curious about, you know, what kind of people are drawn into these these companies. But ultimately, when you're in a creative endeavor, I think the hardest thing for me would be deciding whether I wanted to be on the creative side or the financial side. Because while everyone knows me more as a financial guy, I, you know, I do a lot of improv. I do a lot of other stuff that's more about the creativity yeah. elements of, of things. So I think that would be my biggest struggle, honestly, would not be feeling upset that their stories are going here or doing this because I'd be more fascinated by the fact they have so many records and data points and information. But for me, I think the challenge would be just being honed into the idea of saying, how can I make the, um, you know, let, let's get rid of pyro some more. <laughs> and yeah. Telling everyone to do that and knowing how much pain that causes uh, strange people on the internet and not caring. Um, so. and, and I don't think that through my writing or through our podcast, we're making a huge difference. But I think just being just being a participant in the conversation that hopefully wants to make wrestling better and just i think the total conversation and the direction of it can can push change in in, in the pro wrestling industry to some degree because so, we're part what? of who influences we're part of the conversation that wrestling fans are having whether it's people who hear us directly or whether it's people who hear us second and third hand with the uh, distorted versions of what we say when they stand in in the line at uh wrestling events or whatever it is. I think the biggest challenge is that it's, it's tough sometimes to be invested in being right when you have such low stakes. So it's easy to criticize when, and it's hard to put your money where your mouth is. So what I mean by that is it's easy for me to say, this is a good idea. This is a bad idea, but I'm not investing in the stock. I'm not, you know, uh, uh, making strong bets. A lot of times I'm only talking retrospectively to say, here's what they said they learned about in W in second quarter of this year versus saying, here's where I think the business needs to be in three years from now and really putting yourself out there to, to make those predictions. I think that's the hardest thing that's missing right now from a lot of wrestling, um, wrestling, yeah, commentary or or um, a, a business creation is that I think a lot of times people are really focused on the entertainment side and very little thought goes towards how is our licensing licensing portfolio work? How does merchandising interact? What is what is the role of, of digital media in our ability to create new stars? Why is our developmental set up this way or that way? And sometimes people hit elements of it, but I think thinking holistically about it is the one thing that's lacking. And unfortunately, it almost requires such day-to-day thought that it's almost like you're running the business at that point and at that point i don't have the time to do that so is is there anything we can do to have conversations that better address that uh i think for uh i I think you and i both came up with the idea of saying if if our if we are can make what is it uh seventy five thousand dollars a year a piece through our our patron there you go then uh, we'll both quit our jobs and just do this full time so that that would be one way uh but so so go to patreon.com slash wrestlenomics and uh throw about seventy thousand dollars in there and we'll be all set just one bitcoin now mind it'll it'll make it make it happen yeah it'll grow over time um what are your thoughts in terms of another comment that's in this interview where he talks about how wwe now is just hiring 20 guys and hoping one of them becomes the next cm punk or daniel bryan Uh you know they just they just let go uh ho ho lun and you know you hear different stories some people said it was because there's a family thing some people said uh you know he was just there for to be an interpreter for some of the other guys, um, obviously a few months later after they brought in Ho Ho Lun from the, the C- CWC, they also went out to China and they hired a whole bunch of athletes. 
And so I always felt like the writing was on the wall for him at that point, um, mainly because he didn't have a very good showing in CWC and uh, just didn't really seem to have a big body or a big impressive ability that would, you know, make him stand out in, in the world of wrestling today. But be, be do, careful. Do you, There's a lot of Ho Ho Lun fans out there. I I doubt that. I don't want to backlash. <laughs> I, uh, I I I ta- I talk shit on Twitter and nobody disagreed with me. Okay. So I'm 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 ready to stand behind this one. Okay. But what I what I was curious about is is you know that mentality right now in wrestling which is let's hire 20 and see if we find the star. And I even remember Dave was talking about it this week saying somebody in the company one time said to them, you know, I wish we would just cut half of NXT, figure out which guys were going to go on the indie scene themselves and then bring those guys back because those are the ones that have the passion and are actually going to make it. Yeah. And, 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 and you can make the argument that the independent scene is a better developmental program than NXT is or the performance center is. For sure. When it, it's a better developmental program in finding a certain type of star, um, I think. I think, you know, sometimes you do have the opportunity cost of becoming a wrestler versus doing X, Y, or Z. And The Rock's a good example of that. You know, The Rock could have been an actor. The Rock could have been this or that. And by being a wrestler, he became a wrestler. And I don't know whether he would have – well, because of his family history, it it was pretty clear he was always going to be a wrestler. But I I just mean there's some guys that, you know, kind of leave the business and go into acting or go into some other direction because what they're interested in is is – this creative expression of themselves in front of an audience and they can find that kind of fulfillment in many ways. You know, I don't know whether the Miz would ever go on the indie scene. Right. And we, we see people like Alex Riley who got released and he's not done anything in wrestling and doesn't want to. Um, I mean, he's on, he worked in glow and he worked in Hollywood and things and Cody for time, you know, wanted to go to Hollywood and be a, a star and kind of seemed to find this like love of wrestling almost as a second wind in life in some ways. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I shouldn't even, I, I shouldn't even demean the Miz cause he was someone who was clearly a big fan for many, many, many years before he came in the business. So I think that he's probably a bad example, but a lot of these football players or something, for instance, I could see them, you know, just quitting and going into acting or something else as, as opposed to actually becoming wrestlers. Right. But I, but I think what Suave is saying here, I think that ref, roughly reflects the narrative that at least somebody like Paul Levesque would assert is that, yeah, we, we sign, they've got, you know, I think they, they say they've got room for like a hundred talents in, in the performance center. And last I heard, he's got like something like 70 there. And, and I think, yeah, they, obviously they, they're not going to have every single one of those people be uh, brought up to the main roster to be big stars, but some of them will. And that's, that's an, well, and it, that they're able to make. And it gets back to that big question about is it worth going out and just recruiting Indian stars? Is it worth going out and just recruiting Chinese stars? Or is it best, better to go find you know the, the best talent that's out there? On the same point, I do think sometimes you only get what you always got. And so there's something always to be said for the ability when you go into a specialized field and kind of say, I'm going to look for people here, that it opens your eyes sometimes to new things. What's tough, of course, is when you just end up with the same version of what you've always gotten or always wanted, but now it's just the Chinese version of that. So, you know, the big bodybuilder guy, but it's the Chinese bodybuilder guy rather than, you know, someone who might have some other more natural charisma or something. You know, when my wife was watching Nakamura versus Cena, she was just she was entertained. She was interested. But it was also the shock of like, my God, Nakamura is tiny compared to the body that Cena has and just kind of. Well, just yeah, that that really was her thought, and she wasn't against it. Yeah. But she was just like, he looks so much more like a normal person. I think is what she said, mm, yeah. and it's just that idea of saying, would Nakamura have been recruited as a Nakamura, uh, without him having that immense charisma 
well, beyond, no, I mean, like, you know, his, his body's not incredible. If, his, if he was his, the Nakamura of 2003, he's not getting signed. No, nobody would, yeah, he would, there would be. Yeah, no so, so it's just interesting in that sense, too, where sometimes, you know, I, I always applaud the idea of saying, you know, sometimes you do have to do specialized recruiting because you grow you grow, you, you don't see always the abilities that are in a, a, a subset of a group that especially one that has been underutilized in the past. But the, the challenge is sometimes you just end up with the same kind of rote, you know, formula for what you're looking for in a wrestler, which as we've said, you know, six foot five, this many pounds eliminates so many of the top stars in history that uh, it's it's comical to think of that as a, as a useful metric. Yeah, I, I remember, so, I remember this is a different era and I think people's perceptions have changed quite a bit, but I, I remember in like 2005, um, this is a few years after I got you know, into wrestling and you know, being a wrestler and I would show, I hope I haven't told the story already, but I would show like Japanese wrestling of like Kobashi and Misawa. And I think I, I showed somebody Nagata once. So these other people who are wrestlers as well. Um, and I would, you know, they had never really been exposed to much Japanese wrestling. And I would, I would show them these tapes of like, look at these awesome matches that are going on in Japan right now in Noah or New Japan or something. And that, like they would, their first impressions of these guys would be like, wow, he's flabby. Like, look, man, look at Kawada there. He, you know, he's pretty flabby. And and these were like thoughts that never occurred to me. And and remember, it's 2005, and this is the era of you know John Cena's just gotten the big push, and Batista and you know the Chris Masters of the world are out there. And I I think there is something to that. I think less so now than. 10, 12 years ago, but there's, uh, I think people pay, do pay attention to size and, and to, uh, body types more than maybe I do, or maybe some other hardcore. I'll be curious. Do. I'll be curious to see if great Kali's physique evolves in his next appearance on WWE. Do you think he's coming back at all though? Because it looked like maybe that was one and done. I personally thought that it was a good idea to bring him on because he can do a local pub back in India. Yeah. And I, I would, and, but he's a U.S. citizen. I think I think that's something that that is always kind of forgotten here is that he went through a lot of work to become a U.S. citizen at one point, and so I wouldn't be surprised if he has some kind of you know business or life in the U.S. too. Yeah. And uh, you know, it, it's not hard to bring him in, and I do think he comes back. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see if uh, he bulks up a little bit during his uh, time away there because I think I think it's interesting to see the difference between bodybuilder Kali and and uh, older man Kali. Do you think we'll see Great Kali at WrestleMania? I wouldn't even like be opposed to that as a business idea. Like, and I kind of half half joked uh, on Twitter, I think that you know, if if WWE really wants to make money in India, turn Great Kali against Jinder Mahal, and then you know you can build up that as a major program and cap it off at WrestleMania. <sighs> <laughs> I see, I see Great Kali being part of the Andre the Giant Battle Royal, there so you go. can use him as fodder. Yeah. The way, you know, use Team Bang or someone else, you know, I think it's I think I, I don't think they have the confidence. I mean, they barely had the confidence in him when they were doing the singles matches with Kane back in the day, let alone. Are now. we still at the so. point with, with India where the, the network specials, the pay-per-views don't air live on the network because of another agreement? I believe that expired in 2016. So and so in 2017, I believe it is live. But again, I am highly dubious that they are getting more than a few thousand or tens of thousands of subscribers in india and so the idea of making a market play for that is like making a market play for maryland you know <laughs> if we put this in perspective now if we want to put it in a larger perspective about do they sell toys do they sell merchandise you know at one point a couple of years ago well during one of the um uh the the conference or the investor presentations that barrios gave he talked about specific licensing deals that they created for india 
And uh, I know right now they have the sold out the it's called the sold soul show or store or something like that. It's a T-shirt seller that they have on behalf of them in India. But um, more than that, like I think at one time they were even doing like, you know, special construction toys and dolls and things like that in India as a separate marketplace. Um, you know, WWE has their special um, licensing with uh, Stackdown, which was their like Lego knockoff that they they did their wrestling toys with. And I, for some reason, I feel like that might have been associated with India at one point as a construction toy segment. So um, there's that element of it, which is it's more than just the network subs. Now, is it really make sense for you to upend your entire strategy doing that? No. In some ways, I almost wonder if it's an investor play because it makes the investors think that you're doing such a good job because you've done this big investment there and ratings be damned. But, um, you know, I think a lot of it, too, is I do think Vince McMahon at his heart of hearts likes Jinder Mahal and likes Jinder Mahal's body. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, so that there's that element the of it, too. Which is, yeah. So I think there's and it's funny. My wife also referred to Jinder Mahal. I'm tell, talking a lot about uh, uh, her on the show here. Uh, she referred to him as handsome and, and good looking and attractive. And I said, really? And then she's like, yeah, in the face, he's a very attractive man. I was like, OK, I'll give you that. I was like, I think with with the way he looks now, it's kind of unworldly uh, just how, how, you know, oversized he is uh, in a way that it, it is kind of bizarre with the back knee and all that. But I, I, I would agree that he is a handsome man and he's obviously a lot more handsome than Greg Kali was uh, to a Western audience, at least so. Um, I, I think there's some, some elements there that are going to work. You know, I have not been able to put some WrestleNomic metrics about Jinder Mahal versus Great Khali together yet, but, uh, you know, there's time, there's time. Maybe, maybe we could do uh, some sort of math on like the number of, uh, acne spots that he has on his back versus his Google trends or something like that. And we'll have to figure out some way to account for gynecomastia as well. But one thing I was thinking about when with that WME like uh, purchase was just like, would it be tough for a company to be running two different companies, one where you're doing legitimate testing and one where you're not? Ooh. You know, you saw that type testing. Would that would there be that creep of saying, well, why do we have WWE run its own testing? Why wouldn't we just go through USADA as well and that sort yeah. of thing? Yeah, and raise the stakes. But again, uh, state commissions probably not be big fans of it. But I think it is sometimes a little. Um, you know, it's not like when the the Disney and the Mighty Ducks and all that that, you know, when we we've had sports owners before that own entertainment companies, and it's not like we've we've flipped out by saying okay, those sports are now tainted because the owner also owns an entertainment company. I guess their defense would be, the you know these matches are entertainment, they're a work. It's not a shoot competition, and I think part of the argument for doing all this USADA testing is because you want to have an untainted sport. You want to have you know competitions well, that are not uh, spoiled by somebody taking steroids or performance enhancing drugs or whatever it is and and fulfilling state state athletic commission regulations too mm -hmm. um let's talk a little bit about some other things that are going on all japan uh is this true this was news to me when i was reading through our our things here all japan is is joined uh one of these services yeah the uh the fight app put out f-i-t-e yes f-i-t-e has put out a, a press release saying they've got uh, they, uh, they they're going to have a, num a few pay-per-views. So on August nineteenth, they're going to run the uh, the Ring of Honor War of the World UK show. That's going to be live on the on the Flight TV app for nineteen ninety nine. They're going to do What Culture's stacked show on August twenty second. That's the one that's going to have Rey Mysterio versus Ricochet. Have you been contacted yet for their three thousand man tournament? 
Is it three thousand? No, I have not been contacted. I check oh, my geez. email every day, and I, I, okay. I, I, I got to look the spam folder though. As a as a what culture alum, I can oh, I should I should get right. you in in touch with the owner. That's uh, right. He, it's all he, about who he, you know, anyway. You know, I will say we were talking about you know cultivating talent. He reached out to me when I was writing and said something like, "I see you as a young you know melter. I want to get on the 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 bottom floor with yeah. you, Mookie." And so he, I I will only say nice things about what culture they bought me off, but uh. They gave me a good shot, and I, I appreciate that with them. We should we should use that as some sort of uh, marketing slogan. The Young Melts. That could be a tag team. The Young Meltzers. Yeah, oh, yeah the Young God. Meltzers will fight oh, the Young God. Bucks pretty soon, I think. Uh, <laughs> I think I think you want to be the Young Hales or the something else that's going to be the you know the anti Meltzer. There you go. So, um, so anyway, so anyway, they've got what culture uh, on on August twenty second. That's an, another pay per view. That's got fifteen dollar pay per view. So is it a Ring of Honor UK thing? Is twenty dollar pay per view? What culture is a fifteen dollar pay per view? And they've got the hugely popular Japanese pro wrestling promotion, uh, All Japan Pro Wrestling. That's how they build it. Um, and those are they've got. A, I, it, I'm not really clear on what events they're offering. Uh, if I had done some more research, I, could, I might be able to tell you. But that they it looks like they're selling events per event like VOD for four ninety nine. Uh, and then they've also got PWX, which is this uh, North Carolina super indie. Uh, that's going to be free on, on the Fight app on August 8th. They've got a show with Jeff Hardy. So, And we've, we've seen a contract with their offering uh, independent promotions, it looks like. you know They're offering deals with independent promotions to kind of do some sort of ad revenue share where they, they broadcast their show either live or video on demand. And it looks like they take like something like it was a, a, a 45-55 or a 40-60 ad rev share with the promotion. Which is like, well, how much money look, are they really going to make from this? I'm not sure because. Wait, I mean, clarify for me. When you say ad red share, do you mean it's a buy share? Like if I spend 15 bucks, 40% goes to me and 60 goes to you type well, thing. In the case of like PWX, it's going to be free on on the fight app, so it's not a pay per view. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Ad, ad advertising in that sense. I I was confused why we were talking about advertising, but also buying a pay per view and right. you know whether. Whether fight was just saying based on the number of viewers, we'll give you a percentage of the revenue that we get on the buys or a percent of the revenue we get from the advertising that we've sold, which is, you know, very different. You might just sell twenty thousand of dollars of advertising and then you only are just offering a share of that regardless of buys. But right. uh, and I twenty thousand dollars of advertising sounds like a lot. I would think it'd be well below twenty thousand dollars. But yeah, I would agree. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe that is the um, uh, what we'll do with the Patreon m- money is that we will buy ads on fight about this podcast and it'll become uh uh you know just a a vicious circle yeah we've got got some sort of customized marketing plan so fight weren't they the people that originally did the um the tokyo dome show a couple years ago with jeff jarrett promoting it i believe so was it was the flips app which i think this is the same oh i think that's the same company isn't it i don't know interesting interesting you, you talk and i'll look well and speaking of of tna and jeff jarrett um i i tweeted out this picture of a guy in a bisque mask. Yeah, flips and fire uh, the same thing. So uh, from a shoptna.com. And actually, I don't even know if the shoptna uh, item exists anymore. What it was is I was poking around at uh, USPTO uh, patent uh, trademark stuff, and I was looking at the trademarks, and I was just looking for kind of TNA trademarks in general, both because I was I was tracking some stuff about the Matt Hardy fight going on. Uh, of course, I'm always tracking stuff about the WWE things and who has and has not signed their documents, but I was also just kind of curious about what were the few things that, WW, that uh, TNA has actually bothered to trademark, because for the most part, they don't trademark all that much stuff. And so one of them was this abyss, and so I went to go look at this abyss uh, clothing thing. Abyss mask, right? 
Well, I just it's just abyss, the trademark. Oh, okay. And then you have to submit what is called a specimen because the way trademarks work is it's not enough just to get the trademark. You have to prove it's in use. Now, with modern era of the internet, essentially you can just take a video clip if it's for entertainment services and say, here's a clip of some of me using this trademark. And so a lot of times you'll see like them even proving that they're using trademarks on things from videos from five or six years ago. Um, because they can do that. So they could say, we still have a trademark on Valvinus because here's a video of Valvinus on our website. It's, it's that simple. But, um, for things like merchandise, you have to show that it's in commerce, that it's being sold right now. And so, uh, for this case, they, they took this clip from the shop TNA website and I just happened to look at it and thought, well, that is not Joseph Park. That is not uh, abyss in that mass. This is some kid. And I thought <laughs> it was funny. So I was just like, I just, some intern, put it, right? Yeah, so I just put that poor TNA intern up, and I tweeted that, and that got a lot of retweets and likes, and it was funny. And then I was was contacted by someone who was familiar with the company, who used to work for TNA, and um, they basically were like, that's not just some intern. That's not an intern at all. They're like, that is an executive with the company. And I was like, what do you mean? And he, he gave me the person's name, and I looked it up, and this guy um, – works has been working with them since uh 2007 uh and he has a a a television job let's say uh and a high up television job no less and uh you know i have no idea why he was the model for this at that time he was probably in the um you know in the warehouse when they or the office when they needed to submit something and for better or for worse he decided to uh, be the model for it and maybe it's a little inside joke, but I was I was very amused when I looked up his LinkedIn. I was like, oh, my God, that's the same guy. <laughs> so uh, I'm not going to humiliate him on air, uh, but our, our Patreon uh, sponsors can can DM me and I will tell them who they are or tell them who it is if you want. So that that will be my my other thing we can offer is secret information uh, for the dark Twitter. Uh, you, you can be part of dark Twitter for once. And if, if this guy uh, ever wants to do a mascara, contra mascara uh, in, in New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, his value just went down. Yeah. Well, it was uh, allegedly. You know, I, I don't have proof it's him because he looks different. But, uh, it could be he, someone he, similar, similar looking, yeah. He appeared to join TNA not long after finishing college. So he was a pretty young looking guy. Right. And uh, uh, But yeah, I was just very amused when someone told me that. And I went and looked it up and I was like, oh, yeah, that's him. Yeah. So you never know who it is. You know, it's kind of like when Stephanie used to do all the modeling on the old Titan uh uh, catalog and so there's all those funny pictures of right. Steph and Shane yeah. you know over the years um, VOW Voices of Wrestling which uh, graciously is a host of the WrestleMomics radio podcast um, and has been a supporter of WrestleMomics radio since uh, the, the infancy really of what I call WrestleMomics radio at least uh, they were asking the other day about who do we think has the most Subscribers between Flow Slam, High Spots, Powerbomb, Chikaratopia, Demand. That, that's Rock all they asked about. They oh, just okay. asked those four. They did a Twitter poll of, of those four Flow Slam, High Spots Network, Powerbomb TV, and Chikaratopia. And then I interjected a bunch of others. But go ahead. Yeah. So, well, no, that's, that was my question. So, you, uh, a great question, right? You know, people have asked before, how can we compare these services we know new japan is somewhere around sixty thousand subs we know wwe network is somewhere around 1.6 million give or take you know two percent um and then pretty clear then number three is going to be below sixty thousand. and considering the distance between one and two 
Um, it would not be that surprising if the distance between two and three is also logarithmically different. So we're talking, you know, thousands of subs versus, you know, going down to even hundreds of subs um, between these services. And obviously you and I don't have really any publicly filed numbers that we can go and critique, nor do we have people speaking during broadcast. And we should clarify this from last week's show that in oh, fact, the right. 60,000 number came publicly from new Japan, right. As part of the English language commentary, right. It was Kevin Kelly said it on, I believe it was the first night of, of the G1 climax, just as the first match as the first tag match was about to start. He said, uh, that there's 60,000 subscribers for new Japan world. So, so we'll, we'll clarify what we said there last week. Um, but across these four, and it's a great question. So what was your methodology to try and guess how we would rank these in subscribership? Yeah. Well, as far as some other uh, thing that we can look at to try to get an idea of what these web – so these are all websites, right? What what these websites, uh, what their traffic is like is, is similar web. We can look at similar web, which is this uh, this website that tries to track the traffic of pretty much every website that there is. Um I think the the smaller, the less traffic your website gets, probably just like anything else, like Nielsen ratings or whatever, the the less of a, of a sample there is, probably the more imprecise it becomes. And we yeah, are. which is important to say. So if you're a site that maybe only has ten thousand people that are coming to there, if you have a disproportionate sampling in this study, it's going to make you look way more popular than you really are. Or someone else might be way less because the margin of error could be plus or minus 10,000. So yeah. essentially a binary for you almost. It's somewhat similar to Nielsen ratings, but with a lot less uh, ability to actually choose random people that participate. Right. And so what I'm looking at here is we, I've, I've gone on SimilarWeb and collected the monthly unique visits to uh, to all of these services websites, which would be which, the ones we're talking about again are FlowSlam. The High Spots Network, Powerbomb TV. I can't look at Chikaratopia because the Chikaratopia website is like chikarapro.com slash chikaratopia. And but you you didn't feel confident just putting Chikara Pro in there? No, because I think if you go to Chikara Pro, I mean, I guess you could. And I, I think I, I, I have looked. But if you just go to Chikara Pro, it's... I could see people going to that website to look for tickets or to look for... Oh, absolutely. For, I, for I would just be curious where they would slot in if you were to add Jakara Pro to it just to see where they slot, period. And, you know, obviously if they slot fourth and that's including this other traffic, then you know they're, they're no higher than fourth, right? Let's see. Jakaratopia averaged uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of Stardom World. Is that what I what I said here when I was talking to you and, and, and VOW earlier? I, th I think Jakara is probably in the neighborhood of, of the companies that we're about to talk about here. But it's hard to okay. say exactly where. So anyway, the, the, the point is, if you look at uh, monthly traffic data from from similar web, and again the margin of error might be large here because as as we go down this list, the the monthly traffic is going to get smaller and smaller, and so probably the margin of error is become going to become uh, a, a bigger and, and bigger and bigger by proportion. But but anyway, I, I think of those four, Flow Slam, High Spots, Powerbomb, and Chikaratopia, probably Flow Slam has the highest uh, subscribership, but I don't think. But I think uh, Demand Progress and DDT have bigger subscriber bases than. Or so you're you're positing more, more traffic. Yeah, you're but, positing a world where number three is not Flow Slam, but rather number three is something more like the European Demand Progress. I think number or three, yeah, the I, Japanese DT Universe. Yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty confident that the number three is Progress. Um, even though you have Flow Slam came out with this big push and and 
a lot of uh, hype, at least with people like me, that, you know, oh, wow, what's going to happen here? Is this going to be something that, uh, you know, creates competition with WWE for, you know, all these indie brands that they're going to try to scoop up? And are they going to get Ring of Honor? Wow, are they going to get PWG, which they never got? And there's no sign that they're going to get them. And it's become sort of Flow Slam is kind of just this this carrier of, of Evolve and then some other things that Gabe does. But, but yeah, I, I think probably number three is, is Demand Progress, and then probably num- number four is DDT, then Flow Slam. Then high spots, Chikara uh, Topia probably in that neighborhood, and then even a uh, ICW on demand I think is is next, and then uh, in, in that neighborhood as well, Stardom, even and then getting further down on the list I think there's a, quite a gap between the rest of the ones I'm gonna imagine or I'm gonna mention and the ones that I that I've already mentioned. There's Rev Pro, uh, on demand service, and then Powerbomb TV I think would be pretty far down there still. So this is fascinating to me because. It hits on a few topics. Number one, what I've talked about before about the um, overweighting of British media in wrestling discussions where it feels like on Twitter there's a whole lot more people that are British fans of wrestling uh, proportionally yeah. than, you know, if we were to actually look at the numbers, especially now that we see that, you know, Raw is doing terrible numbers right now in, in, in there. And while they are the second largest country for WWE Network subscriptions – we're still only talking at most, you know, 100,000 or 200,000 uh, compared to the 1.3 million or whatever, 2 million that is in the U.S. So, you know, a, a, a margin of almost six times. So it's interesting to me to see the, the, the European one so high because I always wonder, is this just another example of where we see a disproportionate amount of web traffic but not equaling actual usage or is it, is it absolutely true? And number two, I would say is interesting is the Flow Slam number because, of course, Flow Slam is part of Flow Sports, and Flow Sports gives you a Flow Slam subscription if you're part of Flow Sports, correct? Right. I, I imagine they have a way to track that. They, I, I'm, I'm sure they have a way to track where the subscription impetus came from, if you know what I mean. Like, sure. When I click I, on, I would like, just... sign up, the URL changes to, like, sign up equals Flow Slam or something like that. So I'm sure they're tracking, like, where did these, where did this subscription, you know, order, where did it, where did it originate from? Absolutely. I would just be curious if you put Flow Sports in there to see if the number of potential Flow Slam viewers yeah. could be higher. Because I'm sure there's some proportion of people that signed up through Flow Sports discovered Flow Slam was an option and they use it, you know? I think they're... that number is really small, though, because, like, I've never looked at any... I I, I have a, a year subscription to Flow Pro, to, to Flow Sports, and I've never even played a video from anything other than Flow Slam. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not completely doubting it. I'm just saying, like, my buddy is loves marching bands, and so he was really actually thinking about getting a Flow Sports subscription just so he could watch the marching band competition. And... He would be the sort of person to say, you know what? They have wrestling here. I'm going to watch some wrestling. And so he would be exactly that sort of person that would never sign up for wrestling on his own. But if it was a peripheral to something he's already interested in, I could see him watching it. So, again, it's an N of one and it's a, 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 a allegorical story. So I can't say it's true. But I just mean there, I do think that there's some element of Flow Slam um, sports crossover. And I'd be curious if that in any way changes the number at all. But again, maybe maybe it has no effect. It, it, this is also taking this web traffic and some mobile traffic, right? But we don't really know if it's including, you know, Roku traffic or anything else like that, correct? In fact, I, I think we know that it doesn't. 
I've, I've asked and customer service at similar web, and they've basically told me no. Which of these services have a Roku-esque app? Flow, I, I watch Flow Slam oftentimes through a, an app on my Apple TV. Okay. I know, I'll and that, tell you about the others, though. Yeah, I, and I think, so I, I think Highspots has a Roku app, doesn't it? I think so. They, yeah. So I, I think that's element of it too is is accessibility of you know when you have certain kinds of technology that's not only going to make it more accessible to the viewers but also it could possibly help or hinder you uh, when we look at the the traffic. Sure. Uh, I've been studying. I, think, I feel similar... like that's a big a big barrier for a lot of these services is they've got to have a really easy way for me to watch it directly on my TV and I don't think we're there yet in terms of the technology. Like I oh, think the New Japan for wrestling World, on OTT, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think New Japan World is a big one in, in that. And like, how I, I'm curious, like how are most people watching? How it, it, when when you're putting New Japan on your on your TV, how are most people making that happen? Like, the, I hear a lot of Chromecast. Yeah, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are just taking their laptop and like putting an HDMI cable from their laptop to the TV. And and mm-hmm. for for like mass consumption, like I don't think you can settle for that. You've got it. Well, I think I think the sixty thousand number speaks a lot to it, right? Yeah. So let's say fifty percent of people are turned off by the fact it's Japanese. Right. And remember, the sixty thousand okay. number we're talking about is worldwide. So, and yeah. I, th- I think we think something like ten to fifteen thousand of those are actually non-Japan. Oh, okay. So that's an even better number. So let's say uh, twenty thousand. I'm going to go high. Twenty thousand uh, uh, international subscribers, and of that twenty thousand, let's assume that ten that 90% are turned off by the fact that it's Japanese. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you're saying maybe you could get up to, you know, 200,000 people. And, and I have you, a lot of friends, too. I don't, I'm, just, I'm sorry to interrupt and sidetrack this, but I have a lot of friends, too, who, like, they tell me that they watch New Japan, but these people are not New Japan World subscribers. They're finding the video through, like, whatever daily motion or, or whatever nefarious means there are out there, you know? Exactly. And so I think, and, you and know... Some of these shows just live on YouTube. Like, the day after they happen, you can find the entire show on YouTube for, like, a day before it gets axed you know and and i think that it's just interesting to say essentially the best you can do is you know maybe twenty thousand subs in the u.s maybe 40 or fifty thousand if you're an english-based super indie you know and you had you know the coolest people but it's a pretty small thing unless you can find a better way to get into the apps and get into the rokus or apple tvs or whatnots of the world and be easily accessible because I bet you there are some – I mean I, I would almost challenge if any of these people have kind of their own Roku thing. I would love to hear you know, how many downloads they get or what kind of metrics you can get from these companies to – because I've, you know, I've looked at all the free wrestling channels that you can get through Roku that are easy to find. And uh, it's interesting, you know, and I imagine they get an enormous amount of downloads, which is why I think the future of the WWE Network probably does involve that free tier where it's just a average – you know, a, a, a VOD model. And it's almost a free tier without, you know, certain premium content. Sure. But because um, I, I think there's a lot of people that are out there that are, are kind of in that cord cutter world that look for these free channels and they download them and they they use them. And a lot of them aren't willing necessarily to spend more money on it. But, um, yeah, it definitely the, the, the gateway right now not being involved in a lot of these easy to access app stores are, are hurting them. But I, I really appreciate you going through the work of trying to guess, you know, who's the biggest. I am a little flabbergasted that uh, DTT, DDT Universe would be that big because I would almost think if New Japan has, you know, let's say 60,000 people of which 10 to 15 is U.S. based and DDT Universe has 20,000 people. 
maybe 2000 are US based. Like they just seem like they would be a, a fly on the wall when it comes to US subscribers um, compared to total subscribership, in my opinion. The, the comparison between DDT and and New Japan is like for from average monthly traffic over the last three months we got like 1.4 million visits for New Japan World and about 94,000 visits for DDT Universe. So so almost one tenth, uh, a little know, less than a tenth. I don't know. You can do the math faster than I can. I'm gonna have to pull out a calculator here. Well, I mean, you said it was it was a million something views, right? Yeah, that's about six. Yeah. that's about seven percent. So DDT is DT's traffic, according to similar web, is about one twelfth or so. Seven yeah. percent of New Japan worlds. Yeah, so less than a tenth as much. So yeah, if if they were doing sixty thousand, then then DDT Universe would probably be doing more right. in the range right. of so you, six to ten thousand. Well, if you assume seven percent of of sixty thousand is like four, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, being, being aggressive <laughs> there. Yeah. Well, people love their indie sleaze, as you know. I, I love my, you know, DDT Universe is probably the highest of all the feds if they had a Roku app that I would actually subscribe to. Because, like I said, I, I had a subscription to a service called Con TV, which is like a Comic-Con TV t- channel. And the only reason was is because they had all the episodes of Most Extreme Elimination Challenge, MXC, all the seasons available if you were a subscriber for like five ninety nine a month. And so I, I was I was subscribed to that for several months just to watch that one show on that one channel. And and by the way, the assumptions that we're just taking stabs in the dark at are I think are pretty unreliable because like to compare New Japan World's traffic to to WWE Network, New Japan World is maybe like a, a quarter of of WWE's WWE Network traffic. So and they certainly don't have a quarter of the subs. They don't have a quarter of like one and a half million, which is like what what's twenty five percent of one and a half million? That's that's like almost 400,000 subscribers and New Japan has a fraction of that. So who knows what we're looking at here? Sure. And, and lastly, the, the element about similar web, which is we've, we've gone to some wrestling companies, uh, or or wrestling news websites and said, okay, here's your similar web number. Can you show me your actual views and kind of track that? And we found that the variance day over day or week over week didn't track with what they had. What we don't know is whether the indexing is appropriate. So while maybe they're guessing so-and-so does 40,000 views and they do 80,000, that's all right if they're getting it wrong by everybody by the right of the same amount, right? Yeah. So if you know, you know, if they say you're 4,000 and you're 40,000 and you're 400,000, if I'm going to rank those A, B, and C, I bet you that's right. The challenge is I don't know if I can really say the 8,000 views a day person and the 9,000 views a day person, really who's number one, who's number two. Right. It's probably a toss-up. Right. And it could be completely wrong uh, as well at that point because I think we're getting that margin of error. And uh, you know maybe that's the next big investment for WrestleNomics Radio is to create the first uh, true tracker using some VC money from Silicon Valley of uh, wrestling media, uh, subscriptions, views, the whole deal. And so ad, advertisers come to us, we'll give them the real metrics, and uh, they will then decide how much to spend. There you go. That's what we need is uh, some venture capitalist investment. Well, you know, uh, Eric Bischoff has a, uh, a wide network of, uh, of things that you can join. So maybe maybe this we should pitch it to his company, Harvey Entertainment. There you go. Harvey Bischoff. Yeah. Um, DM us, man. <laughs> Rey Mysterio, uh, supposedly not coming back to uh, WWE uh, – one of the comments made was somebody said basically they didn't want to deal with Ray's uh, representation, which is Conan. Yeah. And uh, was that – had you heard that rumor? Was that in The Observer this week? I, I, I just came across that before airtime here. I had not heard that story. Had you? I think I peripherally heard this. Um, 
This is according to Justin Brasso at SportsIllustrated.com. I don't think this was in. Was this in? Oh dear. What I don't think this was in. Do you find can you still? You've oh, gotten shoot. in Lucha Underground that you did. I clicked on this <laughs> Sports Illustrated article and they're playing things in my ears. All right, we're good now. So, all right, it's 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 an extra mustard section where yes, yeah. Justin Barrasso is saying and and it was just in, intriguing because it was saying they weren't interested in him. Of course WWE basically sat on Ray towards the end of his contract here for a variety of reasons, yeah. feeling that he was, he was injured you know they, they, he, had, got, he had time that he owed because he was injured and also I think they were intentionally kind of trying to bleed him out uh, for the deal I think he had made it clear he did not want to sign a new deal. They made it clear that they didn't want him going somewhere else and so they were at an impasse. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.